Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. On this week's episode, we have a few things in store for you. First, I'm going to talk to you about a new drug approval called Selenexor. Selenexor is a drug that's made widely available through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Accelerated Approval Pathway for patients with pentarefractory myeloma. And it's an interesting approval because it puts the agency's standards to the test. And we're going to run through it this week on Plenary Session. Next, I'm joined in Plenary Session HQ via Skype with Dr. John Renault. He's going to take us through a little clinical trial called Echelon 2. It's a randomized controlled trial testing brentuximab vidotin in CD30 positive T-cell lymphomas. You won't want to miss this discussion. Next, I'm joined in the Plenary Session HQ studio with Dr. Michael Hayes. That's right. You've heard that name on this podcast many times in season one. Michael Hayes has done some important work with me on parachutes in medicine. He also recently did a study on the use of TTF or tumor treating electrical fields for glioblastoma multiform. He's going to talk about work he's done investigating the role of editorial stance and conflict of interest in that space. You've heard the name. Now you get to meet the person. And last, I am joined for a little bonus, a little off the cutting room floor of discussion between myself and Dr. Stacy Dusitzina on Twitter in medicine. Dr. Dusitzina is active on Twitter. She's also a leading researcher in healthcare policy and cost of cancer drugs. In fact, there's no one better on that topic. And if you want to listen to that, I would say tune into a prior episode. But this week she's back and she's here to talk about Twitter and you won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, first up on plenary session, Selenexor. Selenexor is a new drug approved by the US FDA. It's the first of its kind, a nuclear export inhibitor, and it's approved for multiple myeloma that is refractory to five agents. That's right, pentarefractory multiple myeloma. And it is a new treatment option. Where to begin? I don't know where to begin on this drug, but um, I guess there's going to be a lot to talk about. First, I think right off the bat, you need to know this is a very controversial drug approval. This is a drug that the data that led to drug approval is really only uncontrolled studies of what happens when you administer this drug in combination with dexamethasone, which, by the way, is an active agent in myeloma, to patients with multiple myeloma who have progressed through at least five prior lines of therapy. There are a few things you need to know. One, right off the bat, in the clinical study that led to this drug approval, there was an 8.9% rate of fatal adverse events attributed to the drug. That's per the package insert. That's per the STORM trial. And that is a high rate of fatal AEs. And 
one doesn't know for sure what's the rate at which this drug leads to lethality, leads to fatal events. One can only know that truly through randomized controlled trials. But an 8.9% fatal AE rate in an uncontrolled study in a latter line of therapy, that's a bit on the high side, and there's no doubt about it. This drug is also quite toxic. Toxicity includes thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, gastrointestinal toxicity, hyponatremia, infections, neurological toxicity. People who take this drug can complain of feeling completely worn out. They can complain of feeling terrible. They don't like this drug, and a number of patients who've taken it may have expressed such feelings to providers. Nevertheless, if you give Selenexor to these patients in this uncontrolled study, you get a whopping and I'm saying whopping sarcastically because it's not whopping, but you get a 25% overall response rate. But that is really driven by 20 out of that 25% partial response, 19% partial response. Only 1% stringent complete response, zero complete response, 5% VGPR, but mostly partial response. And you got to go back and you got to remember the multiple myeloma response criteria. And you need to know a reduction in M protein, about 50%, is a partial response. And that is not a tremendous reduction in the sequela, the biochemical marker of the disease. It's certainly not a metric of how people feel or function. It is a surrogate endpoint, and it is a weak surrogate endpoint at best. So I think that's worth saying right off the bat. I mean, we're in an age in myeloma where we're often talking about stringent CR and MRD negativity. And here you're talking about, you know, making a modest reduction in M protein in a pentarefractory population. So it, we're not talking about stringent CRs. We're not really talking about MRD negativity. We're not talking about drug with tremendous biological activity. We're talking about a, I would say, rather weak surrogate endpoint. And this is a toxic drug, and it has a weak surrogate endpoint, and it's tested in a population that is quite ill, where unfortunately median life expectancy is measured on the order of months. And this is a drug that went to the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee meeting because the toxicity was well-known, well-discussed in the community. Um, people have Some people have very strong feelings. Some people have told me some colorful things about the toxicity that I can't say because they, again, as I mentioned on this podcast, they say, you can't, you can't mention my name and you can't mention this quote, but just between us, off the record. And then they say something which I can't tell you because, unfortunately, I abide by that sense of ethic. Then... Then, with these data, the drug went to the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee meeting. And look, the FDA doesn't always have ODACs. They don't need to have an ODAC. But when they do have an ODAC, they're convening experts to hear their sense of the benefits and harms. And the ODAC here, they voted that the benefits were unlikely to outweigh the harms, that this drug probably shouldn't be approved. But nevertheless, the FDA, they went ahead and did it. They pulled the trigger on the approval. And that's probably in part because they consider the number of drugs approved each year as a marker of good regulatory science. In fact, we've seen a number of tweets over the last year where officials in high-placed positions at the FDA say, we're doing a good job. Look, we've approved this many drugs per year. And I would humbly say that the number of drugs you approve per year is no metric, it's no benchmark of doing a good job. The number of drugs you approve that are transformational and the number of drugs you reject that are net negative or harmful, that's the metric of doing a good job. But that's not the metric that people like to use. Hence, we get Selenexor. I could go on about Selenexor and some of the problems that I see, but it's better to hear some other voices on this podcast. And I, I see a really promising voice out there, David E. Berry. 
Dr. E. Berry is a junior faculty member at Stanford University. He specializes in myeloma lymphoma and leukemia, and that is a broad interest in heme malignancies. And Dr. E. Berry wrote the following thread on Twitter, which I'm going to read to you because I think he's hitting the nail on the head. Quote, some initial thoughts on the Selenex or approval. It's great that the FDA has identified pentarefractory myeloma as an unmet need. So that's a nice thing to say. He, he's giving the classic feedback sandwich, and I like how he leads with that piece of bread, that nice bit to say. In theory, it's always nice to have more tools in the toolkit for pentarefractory patients. There you go. He's still in that piece of bread. But, second tweet, here he gets into the middle of the feedback sandwich. But we don't need accelerated approval in this space, period. Overall survival for pentarefractory multiple myeloma is measured in months, and therefore trials should be designed with OS quality of life as the primary endpoint. Surrogates have no place here, period. Even if we accept the surrogate endpoint, a single-arm study of an agent with considerable toxicity shouldn't be the basis for approval. In other words, those claiming efficacy of Selenexer are buying the hype. We have no idea if this is better than any other therapy on the basis of STORM, which was a single-arm study of Selenexor in combination with dexamethasone. The 25% ORR, and that's largely PR, as I pointed out, and not VGPR, not stringent CR, is weak for a toxic drug with no proven OS or quality of life benefit. Same for the four months median duration of response. That's also weak. And the toxicity really is concerning. Major GI events, cytopenias, fatigue, nearly 10% grade 5 AEs, exclamation mark. Despite the FDA approval, I plan to recommend against Selenexor until we have RCT data on which to base its use. In the meantime, I'll consider Selenexor in truly refractory patients with no other options after discussing the meager ORR and significant toxicity, including death. That is well said. And David E. Berry, I, 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 I give him tremendous points. And, I, and in a minute, you're going to see I'm going to give him some more points. Because this is a junior faculty member um, who's coming out strong. And, he, and he's coming out strong and actually very balanced and well-justified. I mean, I think he's making a very clear and persuasive argument. And that's why there are a lot of people retweeting this and liking this. Because he, he, he's being very fair. But he's not buying into hype. He's not... Um, just saying this is a great thing because it's new and new is great. So, I mean, I think he's a very thoughtful person and it's quite courageous, I think, for him to come out and say this. Okay, this is what he says. The only thing I'll add to this is in addition to the concerns he's pointed out, I think an additional concern is often is the case in myeloma or any cancer, you can re-administer drugs that people have previously treated and progressed on and you can find that particular subclones that may have previously that the bulk of the disease was resistant to that mechanism of action, those subclones that are sensitive may have thus grown out over time and under exposure to other agents. And thus, you know, giving Revlimid a second time, if you haven't seen Revlimid in a, in a couple prior lines of therapy, you can again induce responses and perhaps with a lot less toxicity than you would with Selenexor. In other words, that just because you've progressed through five options doesn't mean you've run out of options. Oncologists can often uh, and reasonably administer some prior option yet again. And there are a whole bunch of other options that are cytotoxic options that we use in this space that people don't like to talk about too much anymore because they aren't quote-unquote targeted therapies and perhaps really because they aren't quote branded drugs for which there are companies sending MSLs to our office to kind of cajole us to prescribe. Okay, that's one thread. Next thread, Vincent Rajkumar. This is one of the premier experts in multiple myeloma, and he comes down hard on Selenexor. Let me take you through this one. 
He starts the feedback sandwich with, don't hate the player, hate the game. That's the piece of bread. Okay. And, and, and I, I just want to pause here for a second and talk about why that's actually something nice to say. I, I think what he's really saying is something quite profound, which is we have to remember that in what follows, which is going to be devastating about this product, I'm not criticizing people. I'm criticizing the institutions, the structural help policy choices we've made that have resulted in this situation. I'm not hating the player. I'm hating the game. And and that's quite wise because that's really true. I think it's easy for people to feel as if they're the player who someone's hating on. But no one's hating on you. We're hating on the system. Yes, maybe you're going hand in hand with the system. And yes, maybe you're collecting a lot of money and consulting payments. And yes, maybe you could consider using your position to stand up and actually say something reasonable and not consult for the company. Perhaps, okay, maybe there's a little bit of shade being thrown on the player. But come on, for the most part, and, 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 that, and that'll be done by me. But by Vincent, I think he's making a point about the system, which is quite fair. Okay, don't hate the player, hate the game. Sell an XOR approval and pricing highlights what's wrong with our system. One, incorrect approval decision by FDA. Two, outrageous pricing of $22,000 a month. And bottom line, I doubt I'll recommend or use this drug till I see data from RCTs. Thread. And here we go. The response rate is with dexamethasone, not as a single agent. Single agent response rate will be lower. The side effects are too much. The dosing is incorrect. There is no control group. ODAC voted no. And approval in the face of this is baffling. I know myeloma. I would not have approved it. We just had the Bellini venetoclax trial. Better PFS response rate and MRD, but lower OS. A stinging lesson on the limitations of surrogate endpoints. To those who say venetoclax is different, Really? Just show proof that you predicted ahead of time that we should not trust surrogates in Bellini. Oh, he's got him. He's got him right there because Bellini is a classic example. The surrogates go one way, but what you actually care about survival goes the other way. It's proof that surrogates are fallible. And it's a recent reminder that many are quick to forget. Vincent goes on. I guess the FDA will say that they can only consider efficacy and safety and not cost, but they're not even requiring rudimentary demonstration of safety and efficacy. Hard to reconcile such liberal approval standards with the enormous barrier for entries of generics and biosimilars. Bottom line, Vincent. A questionable drug has been approved as a last resort. Patients are given hope and will want to try it, knowing that the public, Medicare, and insurance will have to pay up. Companies set ridiculous prices. This game is not a good game. It has few winners. David Steens, my ads. We studied Selenexor and AML some years ago, and it was so difficult to tolerate. This approval baffled me. Low response rate, high AE burden, therapy given in combination. I suspect it will not be used much, similar to a mass attack scene for CML, where there are five good agents. Okay, now I, 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 I've given you the voice of some other people who are critical of this. I think people are saying the same sorts of things. Look, this is a drug that's hard to tolerate. Look, it has led to documented fatal AEs in an uncontrolled study. Look, the response is meager. It's very meager. And I think we, we cannot forget that in multiple myeloma, it might even be more meager than solid tumors to get a PR because you're literally measuring the blood protein. Okay, so, so that's one of the first points I want to make. Uh, then the next point, of course, is that the ODAC evaluated this. And if you're going to convene an advisory committee meeting and disregard what they have to say, then one wonders why you even convene them in the first place. But the FDA went ahead and approved. Okay, um, but now I want to focus on what people who would defend this approval have to say. So there's this, this tweet online. 
This is by Dr. Leonard um, from Cornell. Separate from the cost issue, which is important, it's interesting how many MDs feel the need to rail against FDA oncology as they make a drug available to cancer patients with limited other options who might want to choose it in an informed fashion while others might not. And I... And, and I highlight this because I think Dr. Leonard has done a fair job of articulating a common sentiment in oncology, which is, you know, the FDA is not saying you have to use this. No one's got a gun to your head. And in fact, many oncologists are free to say, I don't want to offer it to patients. I don't want to use it. So, so be it. But why do you want to get in the way of a particular person who may, after an informed discussion, want to use it themselves? Why, why then? And, and I think it's quite a fascinating question. And it's a question that I think ultimately... Um, shows that the FDA has staked out a position that's quite untenable here, and I want to walk you through that. Um, so what I would say to this is, is you don't really mean it. You don't really mean that the only thing that matters is whether or not a person after an informed discussion has decided that they want to do this. You don't really want that system, because if you do want that system, let me tell you where it goes. Okay, this is a drug, Selinexor, that some people have said is so lousy um, that they will not prescribe it, and even more colorful things that, again, I can't repeat, but I wish I could. Um, but people have said some strong language against it. They don't like Selinexor. It has a 25% response rate. 19% of that 25 is is partial response. It has a, a near 10% death rate, 8.9% AE rate. Okay. And, but there might be somebody out there who's willing to accept that for them, and there might be somebody who's not. Okay, so then let me walk you through the next drug that comes along. A year from now, there's a drug with a 19% total response rate, overall response rate, and 17% death rate. Do you approve the drug or not? I would say, well, there might, again, nobody's saying you have to use it. Somebody might want to after an informed discussion. Okay, then there's a drug with a 5% response rate and a, and a, and a, and a 40% rate of deaths. Do you approve the drug? Again, who are you? Who are you to tell a person who, after an informed discussion, chooses that for themselves? Who are you? And why? And, and what made 25% a magical number? We know for a fact that that cutoff correlates with absolutely nothing on this planet. Okay, it doesn't correlate with feeling better or anything. That 10% AE rate, that's not some acceptable AE rate. It's a choice. It's just information and it's a choice. So now we got a drug with a 5% response rate and a 40% death rate. It should be approved. Why would why do we let a government bureaucrat draw some line that a 20% response rate is okay and a 10% death rate is okay, but a 40% death rate is not okay? Why not? It's up to the person. Okay. Then let's say there's a drug with a, no responses at all and it has an 80% death rate. But, you know, there's a fraction of people in an uncontrolled study that have stable disease. Um, the 20% of people who didn't die, they have stable disease for a long period of time. And, uh, and, and some patient out there might say, I don't need responses. I don't need a response. I don't want a response. You're all talking about clinical benefit rates. You're talking about stable disease. I'm happy with stable disease. Stable disease is better than the alternative. And I'm willing to roll the dice and have an 80% death rate. And who are you? How dare you get in the way of my choice? And if you don't want to use it, you don't have to use it. Okay? The same argument. And what I, what I, what I, what I want to point out here is that there is no logical reason why this is the cutoff and not a higher cutoff. It doesn't make intellectual sense. It doesn't make biological sense. It doesn't make medical sense. If the question is, can individual people choose what's right for them, if that's all that matters, then there should be no cutoffs. There should be no FDA. There should be no FDA. The FDA is an unnecessary agency that decides what an arbitrary response rate is. So 
I wrote back to Dr. Leonard, if it's all about choice, then why have the FDA at all? Let cancer patients decide on all drugs. Why should an arbitrary 30% response rate and a few deaths be the bar? Why not 20% and more deaths, 10% and more deaths? Let patient decide. No need for the FDA. Dr. Leonard wrote back, the FDA evaluated it and approved it based on studies that characterized its safety and efficacy in patients with limited no options. The toxicity of the disease itself is huge. Those who want to use it, use it, and disagree with FDA won't. And I wrote back, but what about the agents that fall short of approval? What about the tavozinibs, tipifarinibs, decidabine, clofarabine? Why not allow patients to use those drugs? Those who disagree can opt not to use them. Why does the FDA get to decide these are not good enough? And I think this is the key issue here. If you had a federal agency, the FDA, who said the bar for regulatory approval will be either you must show an improvement in survival or health-related quality of life upfront, regular approval, or sometime during the life cycle of the product, accelerated approval, that's our bar. And drugs that don't meet this bar will be removed from market, and drugs that do meet this bar will remain on market or come to market. Okay, that is an intellectually rigorous position because overall survival and health-related quality of life are true patient-centered endpoints. Tumor shrinking and growing based on biochemical and radiographic metrics, that's a surrogate endpoint. So what the FDA is saying is that we, as a federal agency, understand cancer patients are sick, dying, and vulnerable. And sick, dying, and vulnerable people who may not have the expertise of a physician are prone to making choices out of desperation or hope that are actually not compatible with their true desires, and that the entire purpose of a federal government, just as we make people buckle up when you drive a car, even if you don't want to buckle up, we prevent you from making choices that are truly not in your best interest, and thus we enforce that drugs that come to this U.S. marketplace make you live longer or live better, or if not, we will pull them at some point. That is an intellectually rigorous standpoint. But the FDA has not embraced that standpoint. That's the standpoint that people like me and Kesselheim and Bishal and Joe Ross and many others have kind of pushed for. But they have not embraced that standpoint. Instead, they embrace the view that there are going to be many, many drugs that we allow on the marketplace based on surrogate endpoints that we have no idea whether or not they correlate with living longer or living better. And there's a lot of proof of this in papers I published with Chul Kim and other people. And we're not going to demand that information after the fact. So even if a drug's on the market for many, many years, there's going to be a fraction of drugs that you never know if they live longer or live better. And as Rick Pazder said in a recent podcast, if you want to know we're doing a good job, just look at the population trends in myeloma. You'll see five-year survivals going up broadly in myeloma. Ergo, we must be doing a good job. That is another very foolish thing to say. You could approve one imatinib and 22 poisons, and the population statistics for CML will get better over time. But you've only approved one good drug and 22 poisons. Okay, so that's one problem. The second problem, of course, is that... Population survival is an ill-suited metric to judge the success of a single drug, particularly because there's secular trends happening all the time in medicine. Survival is getting better over time in part due to earlier diagnosis and better supportive care. So you can't, you can't use that as a justification. You're doing a good job. But I think John Leonard is staking out a position that the FDA, it's an argument the FDA uses. It's an argument proponents are using, but it's an untenable argument. It's untenable to say we will approve based on arbitrary surrogate cut points and people who like it can use it and people who don't like it can't. Because if the cut point is arbitrary in a surrogate, why have a cut point at all? Just let everything come to market and let people decide what the arbitrary cut points individuals will want. Why should a government agency set an arbitrary cut point? We are saying it's an arbitrary cut point. Let individuals decide what arbitrary cut points they want. 
Instead, if you had a government agency saying we're going to use a non-arbitrary cut point, like we want to know the drugs actually make you live longer, live better, then of course, now you have entered an intellectually defensible position. But the current position, the place the FDA has set up their tent, is on the slippery, fast, slippery slope of a mountain. They're not set it up in a stable place. And thus, they will fall. You see, some might even say this is a strategy of undermining the regulatory system. How do you cripple a federal agency? How do you really get rid of an agency? You don't get rid of them by fiat. If you do, you'll look like a fool. You put them in a position where they have to defend standards that make no sense, that serve no purpose, that impose bureaucracy without benefit, and then later point to that and say they have no value because they don't have value because you put them in a position where they're not drawing the line in a valuable place. You make them build a tent on the side of a mountain and then you blow them off the side. And that's what we're going to see. We've already seen FDA commissioner candidates who have said we don't need the FDA at all. And they have you know, kind of a reasonable point. Why do you need a federal agency to say a 25% PR rate and an 8.9% death rate is okay? Why not a 12% death rate and a 10% response rate? Who are you to decide? So that is, that is the crux of the issue. That is the, that is the deep flaw. This is, this is the great long-term game to eliminate the regulatory system. And at the end of the day, if this is the best they are capable of doing, then I guess I even have, have tweeted many tweets in recent weeks where I say, mm, perhaps they're right. I mean, if this is what you're going to have, if you're not going to be able to have a system that actually enforces survival and health-related quality of life, something intellectually, medically, socially, politically defensible, and you're going to instead enforce arbitrary surrogate cut points, then maybe you really do no add no value to the system. And maybe the critics are right that you're just imposing an unnecessary bureaucracy that allows companies to maintain high prices. Okay. Now I want to talk about what I think is the countercurrent in medicine, the danger in, in oncology. These are a series of tweets that, um, that got put out sort of in response to the vocal criticism of Selenexor. Daniel Auclair, quote, I hope we are happy with the drugs we have now in myeloma because with all the recent negativity by some KOLs, I can see industry and the FDA decide to put their limited resources and time elsewhere and then explain to myeloma patients why there isn't anything else for them. I agree that the current system is far from perfect. In the past, we came together around innovative product solutions to help the brave souls courageous enough to try to bring new drugs to what is perceived as a crowded field. Multiple myeloma is far from cured and unmet needs abound. So let's stop complaining about everything that is wrong, set aside our differences and our own agendas, and come together once more for our patients. Joseph McHale. Well said, my friend. We need more options, many more options, and this was a great week for the myeloma community to add Selenexer to our choices. Oh, my God. This is bad. This is really, really bad. You can't, you can't have a functioning regulatory system. You can't have a functioning cancer drug system when people are just oncologists who are supposed to say, this is not good enough, this makes no sense, are saying, this is a great week for the myeloma community. You are setting the bar so low. Oh boy, this is the problem with the field. I mean, this is really empty cheerleading. This is an empty cheerleading quote. It is a great week for the myeloma community to add cell and to our choices. Why, what is the standard then? I mean, why, why? just let every single drug come to market. Every week will be a great week. You'll be winning so much, you'll get tired of winning if you just let everything come through. And I think that's the philosophy here. The, I mean, the, the problem here is that independence has been lost. I mean, 
the industry's controls not only the drug approval, the regulatory space, they control all of the voices they get to comment about drug approval. I mean, is everything has to be unyielding optimism? Is that the end game here? And this is why David E. Barry wins the plenary session Medal of Honor this week for this next comment. David E. Barry, respectfully, we don't just need options. We need proven options with a favorable risk benefit. We didn't get that this week. The FDA failed, and we shouldn't be cheering. Boom! What a good quote. Look at this. Look at this guy. Uh, this is fantastic. I mean, we need more of this in the field. A young person who's willing to say the truth. Joseph McHale, that's a very strong word, failed. Have you ever used the drug? So not providing the agent as an option should be cheered? Yes, the drug has toxicity and more than some of our other agents, but used appropriately, we have seen it benefit many, many patients. When used appropriately, that's always the case. David E. Berry, I don't know how to phrase it any other way. With considerable toxicity and unknown efficacy compared to standard of care, this drug is not ready for widespread use outside a clinical trial. The FDA should not have proved it. Well, kudos to David E. Berry. He's won, he's won a medal this week on plenary session. He's done the very hard task, which is to go up against the juggernaut, the hype machine, and to say the truth, which is this drug is no good. And, and the deep question here is that you cannot set this cut point as the standard for approval. There is no logical reason it should not be lower. And if you're saying people can choose, there's no logical reason why there should be any cut point at all. And that is the problem. That will destroy you. It will destroy the agency from within. Consistently lowering the bar and not enforcing logical standards of drug approval will destroy the agency. You can mark my words. This is going to be something that other people see clearly. You are imposing bureaucracy and you're putting the line in a place that makes no sense. And people will say, why do we accept the bureaucracy? Because you're not providing any benefit and they will use it to eliminate your agency. That is the only logical consequence of the place the FDA has staked out. They are digging their own grave as an agency by choosing this point to approve drugs. This is not good for patients. It's not good for the regulatory system. It is total and utter madness. If you want a system where nobody where every individual can decide in partner with their doctor who's getting $100,000 a year in consulting payments from the company what drugs are right for them, then that's the system you're going to get. That's going to be a cruel, unjust system where people who make a lot of money deceive themselves into thinking they're doing good for others while using other people as a vehicle to promote those profits. It is a very, very bad situation. We need independence. We need to sever the financial ties. We need an FDA that sets the bar for a reasonable standard, which I think we can debate when you need accelerated, when you need regular approval. I support both pathways, but some point in life cycle of a product, you got to show OS or quality of life in the life cycle. In this case, one of David's points was that you don't even save that much time. Median life expectancy is measured in the order of months. You're not, you're not speeding drugs to market by doing these studies. You are merely adding uncertainty to the marketplace. You could run a randomized trial and measure overall survival and you would get the answer very, very quickly. In fact, proof of that, go to the paper by Emerson Chen and colleagues. Go to the paper by Emerson Chen and I in the May issue of JAMA Internal Medicine. Look at table three. We're estimating the study time reduction that comes in the third line setting or later from response rate being used instead of overall survival. And there does not appear to be any study time reduction there. These 
are lethal conditions where you can measure the hard endpoint and you don't save time by measuring response rate and then waiting for that median DOR. Here the median DOR came so quickly because the drug is not that great. So bottom line, Selinexor, bad approval, a bad approval and the counter arguments are worse. The counter arguments illustrate the deep problem in regulatory science, which is the belief that it's just about individual choice. Because that belief, when taken to its logical conclusion, means there is no need for regulation, period. It provides no value in having a federal bureaucrat say a 25% PR rate is good and a 24% PR rate is no good. A person can decide what the right PR rate is for them. But the truth is, no one can decide that because a PR is an endpoint that sounds okay, but very few people have a deep understanding of and actually is not a metric of living longer or living better. And the purpose of a regulatory agency in healthcare is to prevent people who are sick and dying from making desperate choices from unscrupulous profiteers in that space, which is a world we used to live in and was a world that we hoped we wouldn't live in one day, but a world we still live in and unfortunately a world that is plagued with the perverse financial conflicts that continue to prevent reform. So, on that positive note, we're going to turn to John Renault talking about T-cell lymphomas. You won't want to miss this discussion. And also, this year on Plenary Session Season 2, we're going to do some new innovative formats in episodes to come. We're going to add different types of segments, and we're going to change things up a little bit on Plenary Session. So, send us an email and let us know what you think. I'm back on Plenary Session HQ with Dr. John Renault. Dr. Renault is a soon-to-be attending physician at The Ohio State University. He did his MD-PhD training in Texas A&M. He went on to do internal medicine residency at the Mayo Clinic. He did his fellowship at the University of Michigan Medical Center, and he developed an interest in lymphoma during these years and is online on Twitter and really I think not just um, a frequent commenter about all things lymphoma, but truly already an expert, I think, in all things lymphoma. And he's going to come on the plenary session stage today to talk to you all about Echelon 2. So let me thank him for coming. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, and I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you here on the on the plenary session stage. Uh, I've been uh, a big fan of your tweets over over many years because I think um, you know, you really get into the nitty-gritty lymphoma issues, and that's good. Uh, I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking an interest in lymphoma. Um, so I guess I wanted to start by maybe just asking you, why lymphoma? Of all the cancers you could have chosen to concentrate your efforts on, why why lymphoma? Yeah, um, so I, I really enjoyed uh, the kind of subspecialization and being able to become an expert in a particular field. But the, the really nice thing about lymphoma in particular is that unlike some other tumors like breast or pancreatic or colon, there's still a lot of variability even within this subfield. So you have really indolent lymphomas that you, know, you never have to treat, hopefully, and you're able to form relationships with those patients over a number of years, and it's very low stakes a lot of the time. But uh, on the flip side, you also have some extraordinarily aggressive lymphomas that require treatment within a number of days, and patients are really sick. And so I really like that variability and uh, the ability to subspecialize, but still have that variability. I agree with you. The range of patient experience is broad in lymphoma, and I think uh, it's part of what makes it uh, such a rich discipline. Also, the history of lymphoma is so interesting. Would you agree? 
unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about it, okay. but uh, the history that I do know uh, is very interesting, you know, with, uh, uh, with the way that all the different lymphomas were described and, uh, and how we came to understand them a little bit better, certainly. Okay, well, I won't put you on the spot too much, but I think um, <laughs> there are a number of really good books. I would recommend uh, Henry Kaplan and the History of Hodgkin's Disease by uh, Charlotte Hogg, who's at um, Stanford University. That's a good that's okay. a good start. But I think lymphoma has a really rich history, which we'll save for future episodes. So we're going to talk about a paper here that's a randomized phase three trial called Echelon Two. It's a registration study. It led to a label expansion of the anti-CD30 antibody Brentuximab vedotin, which is tethered to uh, MMAE. Um, which is a potent microtubule inhibitor. And this is a trial that's run largely in the T-cell lymphomas. And, I, and I, before we dive in, I was just wondering if you could provide sort of a quick, easy way. How do you think about the T-cell lymphomas? There's so many different types of T-cell lymphomas. How do you organize them in your mind? Yeah, so uh, T-cell lymphomas represent about 10 to 15% of all lymphoma diagnoses in the United States. And, you know, really we extrapolate a lot of the way we treat most of these lymphomas from the three most prevalent subtypes. Um, despite their relative rarity, these T-cell lymphomas are divided into about 30 different buckets. And um, the, the most prevalent bucket is actually this wastebasket called peripheral T-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. Mm -hmm. So that really tells us we don't know a whole lot about these diseases because the the most prevalent category is this not otherwise specified. Right. The most prevalent um, has the NOS in the term. The NOS, correct. right. Yeah. And so, you know, rounding out the, the top three most common, you have angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, or AITL. Mm -hmm. And then you have anaplastic large cell lymphoma, or ALCL. And that comes in a couple different flavors, uh, ALK positive and ALK negative being the most important distinctions, because ALK positive ALCLs do significantly better than ALK negatives. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, um, uh, and ALK itself is named after ALCL. Yeah, um, it's anaplastic large cell kinase. So, yeah. yeah. And um, the other thing worth pointing out is um, there's not a whole bunch of randomized control trials that guide the care of the T-cell lymphomas. Would you say that's fair? Absolutely fair. Um, this is actually one of the first ones, the Echelon 2 trial that's come along. So most of the, I mean, the standard of care, which we'll talk about soon, I presume, CHOP chemotherapy, established in 1993 with Fisher's landmark publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. So really, that's been the, the standard of care for, you know, 30 or more years in these T-cell lymphomas. You know, and at that time, we didn't even clinically make a distinction between T-cell and B-cell lymphomas. That's a good point. They were all then just the non-Hodgkins. Um, let me ask right. you, what are your feelings before we jump in? When do you use etoposide and add it to the regimen? Where do you think that's most potent? So generally, uh, so etoposide is a little controversial. There are some retrospective studies yeah. looking at uh, the utility co in combination with CHOP chemotherapy. And um, in those retrospective uh, reviews of, of the data, uh, it seems that there's only a progression-free survival benefit, not an overall survival benefit. And even that comes with another caveat that it's generally only in patients younger than 60 mm -hmm. because the toxicity is just too great as you, as you get above the age of 60. Yeah. And, and let me ask you another question. Which of these T-cell lymphomas in CR1 are you thinking auto? Uh, which ones are you not? So for, for most patients, we consider auto transplant in CR1 with a couple of exceptions. 
The exceptions being most ALK-positive ALCLs, we do not tend to transplant in CR1 because they tend to do so well. There's some data that those with high IPI scores um, may benefit from transplant, so in some cases you can send those people to transplant. Uh, but otherwise, um, you know, low risk, early stage, we often don't send to transplant, but those are pretty rare. Yeah, and what's, and what's the data that supports transplant and CR1? Let's talk about that. Um, it's not great. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. all retrospective. There was one recent publication that was actually, it was prospectively collected data, but it was not a randomized to transplant or not. Yeah. Um, and there were big imbalances between the transplant and non-transplant groups, as you might imagine. Yeah. Because clearly those who are ill and unable to, uh, not fit for transplant wouldn't be sent to one. Yeah, I think that's um, it's that's always a question that I think is a tough one in terms of, you know, how do you how do you consent a patient to something where the evidence is all retrospective, um, the evidence is clearly confounded. The only hope is it's not more confounded than the signal. Uh, the only hope, right? Is, right yeah. Uh, so I mean, I don't know if you have any pearls, but like, you know, what do you what do you tell somebody? Like, you know, I mean, auto transplant obviously, even at a great center like your center, transplant related mortality must be three to five percent or something like that. Yeah, we, we tend to hover around the three percent range. Okay, that's um, good. The um, yeah, I'm just honest with the patients. I say, you know, listen, you know, assuming we get you a response to this frontline chemotherapy, which is not always the case. Right. In fact, a significant minority of the time, that's not the case. Right. Um, you know, we have some poor quality data that says you might benefit from a transplant. Um, it's not great data, but it's the best data we have. And there seems to be a signal that shows a benefit for transplant. And I tell them, you know, five or 10 years down the road, we might have a better study that tells us the complete opposite of that. Wow. In which case, um, you know, obviously that would be unfortunate at the present time, but the best data we have says, you know, perhaps transplant benefits you here. Wow. I, I have to commend you because I think that's a really very honest and, and very forthright way of putting things. And I think uh, any, anyone listening to this should just, should just take notes because that, uh, that I, couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself, and I think you did a good job. Okay, now let's jump in on this study, Echelon 2. And you know me, I love all the echelons. It's not, I don't pick favorites. They're all so great. What's not to love? Um, this I is, know. Yeah. <laughs> this is brentuximab vidotin with chemotherapy uh, for CD30 positive PTCL, uh, which is that sort of bit grab bag category. Um, you know, I'll let you, let you just take us through, just walk us through sort of generally what this paper's about, what they found, and, and you know, what do you think? Yeah, so... I mean, the trial design is actually quite good. I, I really actually like the trial design. It's a, it's a phase three global, so more than 100 sites in 17 different countries a, across the world. Uh, it's a double blind, uh, double dummy control trial. And so the way that they did this was the, the treatment arm, the control arm was CHOP chemotherapy, including the vincristine. Um, and the uh, treatment arm, the experimental arm, was the brintuximab bedotin plus CHP, and they dropped the vincristine out of that arm because of the overlapping uh, neurotoxicity with peripheral neuropathy. Um, and maybe we should mention that once upon a time we did do phase one trials where brintuximab was added to chop backbone phase one, and those hit DLT quite early with a lot of terrible neuropathy. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, as you might expect, you know, the, yeah. the two microtubule agents, lots of peripheral neuropathy with both of them. That's not surprising at all. Yeah. Okay, so go on. So this is this is uh, uh, CHOP minus Vinca, add Brentuximab versus just old-fashioned CHOP. Correct. And so, you know, the it's important to point out some of their inclusion criteria, the most important of which was uh, the cutoff for CD30 being 10% or greater. Mm. And we'll come to that later that, you know, in the FDA approval, there's no specification as far as what cutoff there is for CD30 expression. And this is based on IHC. Um, correct. And it was, uh, I believe it was uh, at the at the site where the patient was being treated. Okay. Uh, and then later confirmed by central review. Okay. Is the way that they did it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's 10% or more included in the trial. Okay. Um, so the progression, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, which, you know, when you're reading through a large global phase three trial was a little interesting to me that that's the primary endpoint they chose right. in a large phase three trial. Right. Um, so that was the primary endpoint. A number of secondary endpoints, most importantly, overall survival. Yeah. Which you're making the case probably should have been the primary endpoint because you got the population, you got the sample size you need. You're running a trial. This is a disease that, you know, let's be honest, um, although in many parts of oncology, we care a lot about PFS. I mean, there, it's a non-curative setting. That's not the case with lymphoma. We really want to improve cure rates. Is that fair to say? That's entirely fair to say, in particular in this subtype of lymphoma. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to drag this trial out for 10 or 15 years in order to get that signal because your five-year overall survival for these patients, most of them would be on the order of um, 30 to 50%. Right. And so it doesn't take long to accrue for an overall survival signal. Right. And, and if you're curing a higher fraction of patients and you have a cancer where a huge proportion of the hazard is in that first year, you're going to see that, that curative difference in the first year. I mean, when, you're really, when you really have a game-changing therapy in a disease like that. Fair to say? Yeah, you're nodding. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, back to you. So, okay. So it's a global randomized trial. The primary endpoint is PFS. That secondary endpoint is OS. And what else do we need to know? So the patient population, there were, there were 452 patients randomized equally to each arm. Um, the really interesting thing and the thing that needs to be really heavily emphasized is that the percent of patients who had anaplastic large cell lymphoma or ALCL was extraordinarily high in this trial. And that was actually by design. So, so ALCL very strongly, very diffusely expressed CD30. And we know in the salvage setting that these people respond nearly 100% of the time to brintuximab salvage. Um, and so the explanation for the high percentage of ALCL patients in the trial, um, per the study investigators, was that this was a registration trial in Europe as well. And for some reason, the EMA had set a, um, a threshold for something like 70 or 75% ALCL for registration in, through the EMA. And that's the way that I understand it. I don't understand what underlies all of that, but it was, it was a very high percentage of ALCLs in this trial. And what you're saying is that it's a little bit strange because if you picked PTCL at random, you wouldn't get that same ratio. You have to enrich for that. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's enriched. It's about more than twice what I would expect Yeah. Uh, for just all comers of T-cell lymphoma. And I think that's interesting to me because I actually am puzzled why I didn't know that little bit of history, but I would be very puzzled why the European Medicines Agency would demand such a thing if, if that is in fact the case. But we'll, we'll have to leave that for another day. All right.
The only thing I can think of, if you're interested, is, you know, in their phase one trial that was published in JCO, they had about 80% ALCL in that phase one. So I don't know if they kind of have to link to that phase one. I I don't understand all the ins and outs of that. But but suffice it to say, it's a very high proportion of ALCLs in the trial. And so, you know, that's really important to note when you come to the results. And the main results, you know, for the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And you, you see when you look at the paper, the hazard ratio was 0.7, uh, P.01, so statistically significant. Um, when you look at the overall survival, which was kind of the, the big splash at ASH last year, uh, the overall survival also showed a statistically significant benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.6 and a p-value of 0.02. Right. So the interesting thing that came out you know, concurrently in the publication was that they did include forest plots. Yes. Uh, with the progression-free survival and overall survival data. And when you look down at the bottom, when they break it out by disease type, you can see in both the progression-free survival and overall survival that there's clearly a benefit in anaplastic large-cell lymphoma. Right. Um, and I think everyone expected that. Unfortunately, because the patient, was so, the patient population was so enriched for those patients, the other subsets of T-cell lymphoma like AITL and PTCL NOS it's not powered to be statistically significant, but you look at the point estimates and the confidence intervals, and there really does not appear to be a lot of benefit in these non-ALCL subsets. Yeah, so at a minimum, there's uncertainty, and even to the point where you look at it and you wonder if it really is the preferred choice for those other subgroups, for the AITL and for the PTCL-NOS. Yeah, yeah. and you know the, the way that I've kind of explained it is that you know, if you do choose to do brintuximab up front with these patients, you're you're unlikely to harm them. Yeah. But you're also unlikely to hurt them, except in their pocketbooks, perhaps. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah. Well put. Um. Yeah. You're. It. it uh, although uh, you know, for the AITL, that point estimate is 1.4 hazard ratio. Maybe even going the other direction. But you never know. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely underpowered to make any sort of firm conclusions. But you're right. Uh, at a minimum, you're going to hit them in the pocketbooks. Uh. Maybe to the tune of a few hundred k, because this is a really a much more pricey agent. We'll talk about that later. Okay. So so that's a good point. Um. And so you're saying that. Look, where you found the PFS benefit is in the subtype for which it's not actually that surprising because we know response rate is robust to CD30 targeting in that particular type of T-cell lymphoma. And if anything, you've enriched for CD30 targeting because you're not taking any CD30 expression. You're taking 10% or more. Correct. Yeah, correct. Okay. What else? uh, And and then the overall survival falls the same. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about toxicity. Yeah, so I mean, the main toxicity everyone's worried about with brintuximab is the peripheral neuropathy. And so, you know, they did have, you know, the, your standard dosing is 1.8 mg per kg. Uh, they did have a, a dose de-escalation for toxicity built in uh, down to 1.2. Um, I, I was surprised to see that in the control arm, they did actually cap the vincristine, which, you know, if if you had an interest in making it look worse, you may have just left the vincristine uncapped. Ah, good point. So the, the typical dosing is 1.4 mg per meter squared, yep. but we always cap it at 2 mg yep. uh, max. Yeah. Um, and so they did cap it in this trial, thankfully. Good. Um, and, you know, honestly, the rates of peripheral neuropathy was about equal in both arms. The one thing that came out was that the resolution of peripheral neuropathy in the brintuximab group was, it took a little longer to resolve to grade one or less. Um, so... I have some caveats about that. I've, I've seen a number of people use brintuximab 
that aren't terribly familiar with it and have really ended up debilitating people with peripheral neuropathy. And so I don't know if outside of major academic centers where this trial was performed, if that would hold true or not. But nonetheless, within the trial, the, the peripheral neuropathy was about equal between the groups. Yeah, if you look at every head-to-head trial of rentuximab versus Vinca, probably fair to say that across them all, peripheral neuropathy tends to be a little bit higher in rentuximab arms? Yeah, you're nodding. I, I think generally that would be true, yeah. And uh, and what is the sort of special management that uh, that a, a tertiary academic medical center can do to minimize the debilitating effects of neuropathy that may you know not be done in the community? Dose reduction. Yeah. So with with the with the um, single agent, and you could probably do this same protocol to some degree in, in this type of a, a setting. As a single agent, we would typically decrease the dose and or uh, decrease the frequency of administration. Yeah. So instead of every three weeks, you give it every four, um, and you can drop the dose to 1.2 as well. So, so it, it's kind of both of those tricks. It might be kind of hard to space out your chemo if you're combining it with CHOP. You really want to get your, or CHP, you really want to get your, your dose intensity for these types of lymphomas. Right, it's important. Okay, now let's talk about one of the things that's worth noting. Prior to this study in the United States, um, if you had ALCL, um, you might have gotten CHOP up front um, with a plan of even taking you to uh, auto transplant, if, 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 if so be it. Um, there would be a fraction of people in whom they didn't get that complete response to initial therapy or the transplant wasn't able to maintain remission, they would relapse. Uh, in the United States at the time of this study, brintuximab vidotin was FDA approved uh, for CD30 positive T-cell lymphomas, at least a couple of subtypes. Um, is that fair to say? Yep, that's fair to say. Yeah, brintuximab vidotin was commonly used in the relapse setting. It was approved for ALCL. Okay. In this study, what was the rate of use of brintuximab on the back end if you were initially assigned to the CHOP-containing regimen? Yeah, so it was only 22%, um, and that comes with a little bit of a caveat. So, you know, they had um, 226 patients total, Mm -hmm. um, 49 of those uh, um, went on to receive brintuximab as salvage. The one thing to note, though, is that that population that relapsed was probably enriched for non-ALCL. Um, and so the impetus to give brintuximab on the back end to salvage was probably a little less because most of these are probably PTCL and OS, AITL, um, and a lot of the ALCLs, I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm guessing they didn't end up in that group requiring salvage therapy since they got brintuximab up front. I wonder, uh, I guess, but if you're talking about the chop arm, I wonder what the breakdown of salvage is, because I guess you can figure it out from the forest plot, because uh, it'll say in the PFS events, figure two, I see 18 and 19, uh, sorry, in the chop container, 13 and 31, so 44 uh, progression events in the it were uh, AITL and PTCL, uh, and looks like 76 were in the ALCL on uh, the chop containing oh. arm. So it's still maybe about a two to three ratio. Uh, ALCL, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, so, um, so yeah, they they we don't know the breakdown of those patients and which ones got the right, the right, right. Certainly lower than you would have expected or hoped for. Yeah, you're saying we don't know the breakdowns exactly, but probably fifty percent of people 
who did get a subsequent therapy got brintuximab containing regimen and maybe uh, it's hard to know what that percent might have been in the United States, but be that as it may. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting study. Um, interesting study in the sense that uh, I think a lot of people do believe that to some degree this changes practice. Uh, just how much practice it changes is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, my standard practice right now is for, for ALCL, whether they're out positive or out negative, um, I would offer these patients rintuximab vidotin up front. Right. Um, for the rest of the patients, I have not made it a standard practice to offer rintuximab vidotin up front. Um, mostly because I'm not really convinced by this data that it benefits people, um, and it certainly does put a strain economically on both patients and the healthcare system as a whole. Yeah, I think that's well said. Now, what about um, that 10% cutoff of CD30 positivity? How does that play into your thinking? Um, so I'm only using it in ALCL, which 100% of the time almost strongly and diffusely right. CD30. Fair point. So it doesn't come into my decision-making. Fair point. That's a good point. Yeah, okay. I think that's a reasonable conclusion of Echelon, too. Um, I think, you know, I, you know me, I like to beat on my drum of I want adequate post-protocol therapy. You always have that little question mark here. Um, but I, I'll have to run the numbers to see if it's possible it could have accounted for the magnitude of the difference because we are talking about a very small group of people who re- went on to subsequent therapy, 96 out of the 222, um, or of the 226, and whether or not that, that if you would increase that a little bit, whether or not that might have changed things. So sure. over, overall, you're glad to have phase three data in, in T-cell lymphomas. Is that fair to say? For once, someone has shown that it is possible to do, and this should really serve as a model in some ways for how to do these types of trials in this rare lymphoma, certainly. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, no matter what, I think this is a, yet another piece of evidence to add in that bucket of we do people uh, a disservice when we don't try to get together and randomize rare diseases. Uh, I think people come up with all sorts of reasons why it's hard to randomize rare diseases. I've always, and some data suggests, that I think it's the ability for investigators to cooperate that's often a barrier. Here you have uh, a company that has a very lucrative financial product that's able to breed breed collaboration, and that's, uh, that's a good thing, I guess. So in your future career, you're going to be a T-cell lymphoma person. That is the plan, yes. All right. And I guess um, I guess let me ask you a couple more questions. The ALK ALCLs, what do you believe the role of ALK inhibition is in those patient population? Um, there are some ongoing studies right now uh, evaluating that with some of the newer TKIs. Um, I'm not, I, I don't recall the data too well off the top of my head, but in previous kind of smaller trials, yeah. I don't believe it's worked out all that well, unfortunately. Yeah, which is ironic because of the great success, I think, in EML, ALK4, rearranged non-small lung cancer. Now, what about what is, what is your feeling on allogeneic transplants? Who are the patients in whom you'll think about allo? Um, so there are some, I believe, some trials ongoing right now evaluating the use of allo transplants. It's really, you know, even less data than auto transplants. Right. And so I really start thinking about it after patients have failed auto-transplant and if they're still fit enough to be able to undergo an allotransplant. The, the one exception to that is a, is a rare subset um, called hepatosplenic uh, T-cell lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And we often um, 
just try to bridge those people with chemotherapy to get them to an allo transplant because they're very chemo-refractory and it's very aggressive. Yeah. And so those are p- patients that you consider for an allo transplant um, up front in PR are better. And, and those patients often had had prior exposure to a certain class of medications. Is that fair to say? I don't know. You're putting me on the spot. Oh, I'm thinking about the TNF-alpha <laughs> agonists. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of them have, uh, like, Crohn's disease or, or um, you know, ulcerative colitis, and they have had exposure to uh, immunosuppressive medications like TNF-alpha inhibitors. Yeah. yeah, because I think we haven't had seen so much hepatosplenic T-cell lymphomas in the eras prior to those drugs. I mean, I just don't re- recall it as much. Yeah, um, I certainly wouldn't recall it. I wasn't around oh, before right, the era. Yeah. I guess <laughs> I don't recall from even my readings because it was before my time too. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I do think that the part of the reason there is that, I mean, what you're alluding to, I think, is an unspoken philosophy in lymphoma, which is this, if, if I could try to articulate it, it is that um, uh, there are many situations in lymphoma where we do not have randomized control trial evidence. That, that's, that's a concession right at the outset. And then what we think about is um, the more... Uh, we know and believe a disease is universally lethal, and the more we think um, cure uh, is fleeting, uh, the more aggressive providers inherently become uh, with recommending earlier upfront use of allogeneic transplants. You're nodding your head. In other words, if, if, if we know we're not going to do a great job with the sort of conventional therapies that we use a lot, like chemotherapy and even auto, we reach for those sort of salvage therapies that we usually keep on the back, the back shelf. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it depends on your philosophy. But in general, I would say that's kind of a, a rule that many lymphoma physicians live by, yeah. So, for instance, like your MIC rearranged DLBCL patients, let's say they relapse or they have primary progressive disease, what do you think about, I guess now you have CAR-T for those patients. Yeah, so you're really bridging them to CAR-T at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you put them on a trial, you give them some salvage chemo, ice or DHAP or something, and then you're getting them to, to CAR T. That's the, the general, that's the general approach in these patients. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the same rule you brought up before applies here. Exactly. You know, oftentimes yeah. we're intensifying this upfront therapy for these patients without a lot of great data that it actually helps, unfortunately. Yeah. And I guess to me, I've always wondered if, um, the intensification, um, does improve outcomes or if it merely just kind of adds a lot more toxicity on the path to sort of an inevitable outcome that sadly nobody wants, but is sadly, unfortunately, the limit of biology, I think. That's one thing I've always, I've always struggled with. But I think, I think you're right that lymphoma is such an interesting field in part because even though it's one thing, it's many things, at least maybe what WHO classification has us around 200 or plus or minus a few different types of lymphomas. Too many to count. Too yeah. many to count, yeah. <laughs> and I think the other thing about it that's interesting is the range of patient experience that you talk about. I also think that the history from from Hodgkin uh, to to Henry Kaplan to Vince DeVita to uh, Belladonna uh, to all the way to Rick Fisher and colleagues in the 93 paper, I think it's a very interesting history um, kind of taking us through um, sort of almost emblematic of the entire field of oncology, lymphoma might have had some of the same experiences. Um, there were clear successes, uh, few and far between, things that were a little bit difficult to replicate, um, some false leads, uh, a, a lot of best intentions, and, and gradually maybe we're, we're better today than we were 10 years ago, uh, but that process has not, has not been always so easy. Yeah, absolutely agree. You know, it's, you know, Hodgkin lymphoma in particular has been one of the great success stories in the field of oncology. And, you know, I'm hopeful that throughout my career over the next 
several decades that uh, we'll be able to have uh, equal success in some of these other subsets of lymphoma and hopefully in some of those subsets that really do need need a boost these days. So T-cell lymphomas in particular, which is hopefully what I'll uh, be working on and trying to contribute to. Well, that's fantastic. And I guess the last thing I'll ask you about is if you had a chance to read um, the paper by Graham Collins that he cited about FDG avidity after Hodgkin's lymphoma treatment and what that ended up being. Um, I, I don't believe I've read okay. it. I, I would I would guess that they actually did biopsies on this FDG avid disease, and the majority of the time it was not lymphoma. Yes, I, it had to do with that. I, is I, I yeah. see. I, I thought that the course of practice is when you have FDG avidity, then you just radiate that and you score that as a modified PFS event. That's what some trialists taught me. Uh, but uh, that's that's one of the reasons I don't like echelon uh, echelon one. Uh, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, Dr. Renault, thanks enough. so much for for coming on the podcast and for taking us through echelon two. Uh, your, your takeaway message is um, yes, upfront brentuximab therapy, uh, but within the subgroup of ALCL um, and probably not AITL, probably not N- probably not PTCL NOS. Yeah, that'd be the good takeaway. And then I guess the last thing is, if the patient did achieve CR with brentuximab, uh, are you going to take him to auto? Um, no one knows the answer to that question. Um, we have typically still been recommending auto transplant for ALCLs that are ALK negative or high risk ALK positive, um, but it's it's really an open question. You know, the the other open question is how how does this BVCHP compare to CHOEP or yep, the addition of exactly. a like we talked about at the beginning? So these are wide open questions uh, in the field right now. Yeah, I think that's that's the other good question worth asking. Uh, I I know how it compares in terms of price, but I don't know how it compares in terms of efficacy. Uh, but yeah. uh, but I think uh, you know you did a great job taking us through the paper. I thank you for that, and thanks for coming on the plenary session stage. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Michael Hayes. Michael Hayes is a practicing internist at the Kaiser Permanente campus here in Portland, Oregon. He's a graduate of the OHSU Internal Medicine Residency Program, and before that, a graduate of the Pritzker School of Medicine, the University of Chicago. And Michael Hayes went to Pritzker School of Medicine in the years after I went to Pritzker School of Medicine when they decreased the class size and increased the standards by which Pritzker students were admitted. Isn't that fair to say, Michael? Definitely. (laughs) Definitely is right. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Plenary Session. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've had a bunch of Pritzker grads now. We've had you, Joaquin Chapa. Oh, Joaquin. Joaquin, he's good. Yeah. Was he your classmate or when you're below? So he started as my classmate, and then he took a year off I see. and then graduated a year after. I see. And um, we've had, of course, Adam Sifu many times with whom, with whom we've all trained under. Oh, yes. And I'm trying to think. I guess recently we had David Steen's mind. He's also a UFC grad, but uh, he predated us. You may not know him. I don't, I s- I I don't see think that I furrowed do. brow. Yeah. Well, it's good to know the UFC community is alive and well. Where to dive in, Michael? You and I have worked on a few projects together over the years. I guess I wanted to talk to you about some of your papers, but first I guess I wanted to talk to you about the transition. So you were hmm. very recently and throughout your career – um, you know, in the in the academic medicine mindset, um, you 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 you're still in that mindset. I don't think you've left that mindset because you're still an always learner kind of person. Uh, but you recently jumped about a year and a half ago to Kaiser Permanente, 
uh, or as we like to call it, the golden handcuffs, uh, where you practice a general internist clinic. And I want to know, you know, what what motivated that change and also um, what have been the pluses and minuses and, and what do you like about it? Um, so as far as what motivated the change, I think it was largely driven by things outside of medicine. So family factors, mm -hmm. um, social factors, and, and uh, it, it took me a long time from, you know, starting in academics to realize that those things were okay to kind of prioritize for myself. Good. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that from that standpoint, I've been very happy in the last year since I left of that, you know, my life you know, I have, I have weekends off and, and, you know, it, it, it's hard to say that that's a priority for me, you know, coming from academic mm -hmm. training, but it is, and it it, is, it's yeah. made a really big impact on the quality of my life. Mm -hmm. As far as, uh, pros and cons, I mean, it, it, the, the Kaiser system, I think has a lot of pros and I yeah. think they take really good care of, of most of their patients, honestly. And, and I think that the structure of the system is, is very very different than private care and and that changes how you practice um but i i think you know what i can say in the last year is i have seen a lot of patients and i've continued to learn a lot and and i think you're right you know i still spend time reading journals and trying to make myself better um but just kind of prioritizing it sometimes you just need to do whatever the patient needs um regardless of whether that's always like the textbook right answer right from a, a journal and evidence standpoint right I think one of the things that um, I'm always drawn to about the Kaiser system is uh, that, you know, in too many academic settings, if you want the opinion of a dermatologist or an oncologist or a cardiologist, you got to get a formal consult, get the patient over there, schedule the appointment. And part of that is driven, honestly, uh, by billing because people don't want to give you their information yeah. that's in their head without being able to bill for it. But in the Kaiser system, I understand it's quite different, that if you want the opinion of a cardiologist to look at an EKG mm -hmm. or a dermatologist to say, hey, what do you think about this rash? You can do a quick curbside. You can say, hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. And uh, let's save everybody a little bit of time here. Yeah, and we do that every day. You do um, that every day. That we call consults and get quick opinions so that so that even we can get the treatment rolling even before they see the, the clinician. So, you know, I have a patient I'm dealing with hypercalcemia right now and I call the endocrinologist. We've started the workup, we're, we're managing it appropriately and they've got an appointment in a few weeks, but we're already doing everything that the specialist would be doing, mm -hmm. um, but just starting that process sooner. And I guess I wanna give a shout out to one of the plenary session listeners, uh, Alex Mentor, who's a Kaiser Permanente oncologist in uh, Denver, Colorado. And I want to give this shout out because I think this gentleman has engaged with this podcast quite a bit. And he made an interesting point on a prior episode of his podcast when I was talking to Stacey Dusitzina about how insurers, it seems to me, at times act as if they don't really have an incentive to engage in cost control. He pointed out um, that Kaiser Permanente actually does care, I think, about global costs. And in marketplaces where Kaiser is an entrant, um, there appears to be... Um, he pointed out uh, a, a change in the trajectory of cost growth, and in fact, growth is actually stabilized to some degree. So thanks for that point, and I think that's a, that's a point worth noting. So overall, I think, you know, you find it fulfilling. Mm -hmm. You practice good medicine, and I guess I would say that, you know, I don't know, I think maybe years from now you'll look back on this time with probably a lot of fondness from everything I've, I've gathered yeah. from interviewing people and talking to people and, and a little bit of experience, which is that, those first few years when you come out of training, um, you are really 
uh, I think you're changing a lot. You know, it's it's a time for metamorphosis in terms of bedside manner, how you think through problems. I, I'm I'm I, I mean I'm I'm confident you graduated and you knew a lot about medicine. You knew all the answers, mm-hmm. the textbook answers. You knew the right thing to do, but uh, actually being able to do the right thing over and over again. Um, I think it's a slightly different thing, and, and getting the confidence that your opinion is right, that doesn't come with learning, that comes with doing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the weirdest, or the, the hardest transitions is that nobody's watching you anymore. Right. And so you can, you know, I, I you can do whatever you feel like you need, and, and sometimes you do the wrong thing, and that's, you know, you make mistakes, and that's how you learn, and that's okay, but um, that that point you make about having confidence in yourself is is definitely in process for me. Like I still doubt myself a lot and, and I'm learning a lot. And for anyone who thinks they've made mistakes, I think they should read an article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think in 1984, when doctors make mistakes by David Hilfiker. Mm -hmm. Do you know this article? Yeah, I think I read it. I read it a while ago. I I can't recall much of it right now. Yeah, I think it was well, it's good that you can't recall because there's some quite there's some mistakes in there that um, that really make you pause. But I think actually it, it it was it's a bold article for a doctor to have written, particularly in that time when it was almost taboo to talk about mistakes the way this gentleman chose to do. Um, and I think it's just a remarkable. I, I mean, my understanding of this individual is he's a remarkable person both inside and outside that article. Um, but I think people should should take a read of that article. So, okay, so you're in the Kaiser Permanente system. Uh, you're doing well. Uh, before that. You weren't doing so well because you're working with me, and <laughs> and uh, that comes comes with a lot of pluses and minuses. Mm. My, the minus was I probably clogged your inbox from time to time. Michael, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Where's the paper? You're laughing, but you know it's true. Yeah, it is true. But the only reason you had to write so many is because I I would ignore my inbox until <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. yeah. I actually got any work done. Well, I was I was thinking about other ways of tracking you down. I know you ride your bicycle to and from work, so I could easily camp out on that street, that protected street that you ride down. I know you ride down Clinton Street, and I can ca- I can ambush you at any corner. Well, I don't anymore. You don't anymore, but uh, I can still track your whereabouts. Don't you worry about that, Michael. So we did a few papers over the years. I wonder if it's if it's worth it for the listeners of Plenary session and we talk through them let's talk about the first one parachutes parachutes yeah where do we i guess i would say and and this has been brought back into light by robert yay who i'm going to get out here on the podcast eventually he's the guy who did the bmj paper recently where they actually did do a randomized control trial of jumping out of oh, an airplane yeah. with, without yeah. a parachute and i i took him a task a little bit on on twitter uh but but they claim their intentions are pure and honorable and and i give them the benefit of the doubt uh even though i think the paper will be widely misused but let's start with where you picked up on this on mm-hmm. this thread so you and I both practice medicine. Uh, we both know there is certainly the phenotype out there, the doctor out there, who doesn't like to be questioned about their interventions they are employing in their practice. And one of the ways in which students of evidence-based medicine would question such a physician is to say, like, you know, look, what you're doing doesn't have good evidence to support it. And what often is unsaid but is true, in the history of medicine, when you look at things people believed in, often fervently, but they didn't have good evidence to support those things, those interventions, well, it turns out that they tend to be wrong quite often, probably more often than they're right for a couple of reasons. One, biology is is difficult, it's challenging, it's forever elusive, um, and the best laid plans of mice and men off go astray, um, so that even if you have a good pathophysiological understanding of the problem, you often fail to improve the endpoints you care about. And that's something that has happened to great people throughout time. 
So, so that's one thing we'd say. Um, the next thing we'd say is that, look, there's probably a number of psychological and or financial biases that make you believe with awful confidence that what you're doing is right. But if you didn't have those psychological and financial biases, you might not be so fervent in that belief. Um, and then sometimes when you look at these practices closely, you say that even that pathophysiological rationale, that's also lacking. But this doctor may fire back at you. First thing they like to fire back is to say, well, you know, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And you say, look, that's true. You beat me there. You're a logician. That's a, that's a fact of logic. That's absolutely the case. But practically, it's wrong in medicine because, as we've just outlined, the pretest probability anything you invent in your mind will work is actually quite low. Mm -hmm. So the absence of evidence often is not evidence of absence, but it's a good probability that what you're doing is not going to help somebody just because the pretest probability is quite poor. Yeah. But then they fire back at you, and this is the trump card. You know what else doesn't have evidence that shows it works? Parachutes. The parachutes. The parachute. So tell us about this. So this was an article that came out, what, a couple decades ago in the BMJ. Yeah. The starting point of your work. Yeah. So the original article was kind of a uh, tongue-in-cheek article about trying to design a, a, a randomized control trial of, of parachutes for skydiving. Mm -hmm. um, and, and essentially saying that it's impractical, right? It's impractical. Um, it couldn't be done, mm -hmm. which, I mean, there's an argument to be made there. You, it's you true. Probably, I, I would not want to partake in that study. Right. Um, but but then that article, um, uh, you know, the, the reason this started is you and I started talking a lot about, you know, the language that, that clinicians use to communicate with each other and some of these kind of boisterous verbiage and, and things like that about yeah. about using a parachute as a defense for a medical practice, which is kind of absurd. Um, and so we started looking at, at you know, articles or, or um, practices that have, have actually been published using this as a defense. And, and we found a number of, of these such papers that used parachutes as, as defense for medical practice in, in the medical literature. I think that's well put. Um, the first thing I think you set out to do was you set out to estimate what is the absolute risk reduction of a parachute. Oh, yeah. Man. So I didn't review this this paper. I reviewed the, the next one we'll talk about more. Um, if you have it, we should probably pull yeah, it I up. Remember. I, I, I remember. You remember it. I don't remember off the top. It's uh, Seven it's, fatality. It's yeah. yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, the first thing you did was you looked to see, are there case reports of people jumping out of an airplane without a parachute? Well. And there were. Well, so there weren't case reports of that. There were. There, it, it's tracked in like the the national um, skydiving registry. Yeah, it, yeah. It's tracked. Oh, this um, is deaths with a parachute. Deaths with a parachute right, of, right. of accidents of yes. like what went wrong. So I literally spent a couple of days reading through cases of how people were like fatally injured after skydiving, which was quite I, morbid. I have not skydived since then. Not Sky, since skydive. <laughs> skydiven. 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 Um, yeah. Since then, but prior to. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had. I how do you know that you're a skydiver? I mean, not really. I went. I went twice. I see. Yeah, first time was great. The second time, I said, "Ah." I see. I'm and done with and this. clearly, you were randomized on both occasions to the intervention arm because had you been, <laughs> yeah. yeah, had you been in the control arm, we wouldn't be doing this interview. Would not be here. Would not um, be here. So, I, yeah, I see. So, the, so then the one side is with the parachute. You found, I think it was seven deaths per ten million jumps, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then without a parachute, you found, although there were not, I think, clear instances of someone falling clearly without the parachute, there was something like a airplane had some intra air disaster and mm -hmm. one person survived in a seat yeah i, think, I mean like we that. essentially yeah. said that for the the fatality rate is one right like yeah. you are yeah, yeah. 99.9999999999 absolute risk reduction yes yeah 
And and that's a big number. That's a big absolute risk reduction that we don't see too often in biomedicine. Some of the things we cited was a paper by I think John Unides that mm-hmm. said, you know, that only one in eighty thousand practices in all of Cochrane have a very large effect size on absolute mortality, and that was ECMO for neonates. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing we did was we looked through a paper by Paul Glazius and colleagues from Australia where they found. Um, that are, although there are some things in biomedicine that are universally accepted without a randomized trial, like liver transplantation for end-stage liver disease, um, these are few and far between in numbers yeah. something in the order of 100 out of maybe half a million things we do in biomedicine. So enter your paper. You got that original BMJ paper uh, that said, where are the randomized trials for parachutes, that tongue-in-cheek article. You look through all 822 references. Yes. Uh, you read those. And you know, every time I give this lecture, I say, and that is why God made Michael Hayes to, <laughs> to do that hard-hitting reading. I made uh, uh, I, I, that was a lot of reading. There's a lot of reading, <laughs> yeah. And can I, uh, and, and, and I think it's time to be, to be totally honest with listeners mm-hmm. up front. How much money did I pay you to do all that reading? Absolutely zero. <laughs> Didn't I buy you coffee once? Uh, probably at least once. At least once. I think <laughs> you've bought me a, a lunch once too. A lunch once. Yeah, yeah. I want to yeah. see that on those disclosures. Yeah. Um, so, so in other words, you were poorly compensated. Yeah. Unf- yeah. Unfairly compensated for this work. But what you found was um, of the 822 articles, I think it was like 35, where the authors specifically analogized something they're doing to this parachute. They Correct. used it as justification. And then you kind of teased through the evidence base for those. Yeah. Uh, and you weren't happy. No. Uh, the only one I can remember off the top of my head yeah. that I, I felt like had reasonable a reasonable argument mm-hmm. was um, evacuating epidural hematomas right, like right. from, from neurosurgery. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, before some sort of catastrophic yeah. incident. I, I think more common, I, you know, we saw at least two pro- or papers that were dental procedures yeah. where they analogized parachutes for a dental procedure. Right. Which, which I'm not a dentist, but that seems... Yeah, and, and not to true. I, I mean, yeah. I want to be clear. Dentists do important work. Yes, they do. You see yes. the dentist. You're not an anti-dentite. No. You're not. Okay, not. neither am I. And I believe in dentistry. I'm not an anti-dentite. But yet I do humbly argue yeah. that, you know, worst case scenario, if the worst case scenario is you lose a few teeth, that's not quite the same as yeah. a parachute. Correct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most of them were were fairly trivial matters, and and then we also looked at subsequently had some of these been tested in randomized trials afterwards, and yeah. the answer was yes that yes. some of them had been subsequently tested. I think eighteen out of thirty five. Yeah, and then you looked at the breakdown of that subsequent testing, and it wasn't all positive. No, uh, if I'm recalling, six positive, five mixed results, five negative studies. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, I thought this was quite sobering, and it was called something like Most Medical Practices Are Not Parachutes, Mm -hmm. an Empirical Investigation of the Parachute Analogy. And I guess I think, uh, I hope someday it's well-cited. Since then, we've been been thwarted uh, by Robert Yeh. Uh, where he actually did do a randomized trial of jumping out of an airplane with or without a parachute. Did he do that in response to our paper? No, I think no, he didn't. Yeah. He did in response to. I mean, I, I well, I I would be. I wish he did in response to our paper. It would be flattering. It would be, Robert. I he, I'm going to have him on this podcast eventually. Um, I'm actually trying to get him out in Portland, and then when I get him out here and have him on the podcast, then he'll have to explain himself. But for now, we can talk about him, and he'll be forced to listen to this. I'm sure someone will tweet it at him, and he'll listen, and he'll think, damn him for not having me on the podcast to justify myself. But, I mean, I, I hear what he's saying. Um, I think he pointed out there's a number of pivotal trials in cardiology that were negative. One of the 
oft-touted reasons why they're negative is that doctors, for better or worse, are sort of unwilling to randomize the quote-unquote sickest patients. Mm. And and had you done that, perhaps it would have been different. Um, there's a number of things I would say for that argument. But um, and and his his analogy is like when you do do this study, people are not willing to randomize from the highest heights, but they're only willing to randomize from like three feet above the ground, sort of a triviality. Um, sort of drawing that analogy to courage, uh, perhaps, as some say. But I don't think that's true about courage. I think courage is a well-done randomized trial that does really contradict something. Um, and again, I think I think that if you really want to validate an intervention that's done widely with something like half a million people per year and something like $20 billion a year in revenue, you can't just say negative trials have flaws. You got to say, here are some positive trials. Yeah. You can't just say the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence for Santa Claus. You have to prove Santa Claus exists, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I would, you know, I would respond that it sounds like that's more of an argument against how we conduct trials than it is an argument about parachutes, right? right? Like we can fix that problem of theoretically, we can fix that problem of how we conduct trials so that they're accurate. Yeah, um, and we should be including the sickest patients. Yeah, and, and certainly there's been a lot of data and. And we know when we look at clinical trials that it's a very select group. Yeah. But that's that's not a problem of the intervention. That's a problem of the trial. Yeah. I used to say, I used to have an analogy that says that's the problem with United Airlines. It's not the problem with the Boeing 747. But then one of those Boeings had some big problem with it and because I, I had to stop using my analogy. Yeah. But I see your point. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, um, you know, when the CMS has used coverage with evidence development, which is a cudgel, which is a way in which you can get what you want out of clinical trials. You say, well, I'm only going to cover this if you do it in the confines of a randomized trial. For instance, SAMPRIS, randomized trial of intracranial stents, they mm. got exactly what people want. They got the randomized trial that is kind of reflective. So we do have mechanisms, I think. One is, I think, denial of coverage outside of randomization. That's an easy mechanism to get people to randomize. Yeah. Well, anyway, we can beat on about this. But we'll, we'll talk about the other paper. But I think the takeaway of parachutes is, well, I don't know, what do you think the takeaway of parachutes is? I mean, I think the takeaway for the most part is that in medicine we don't really have parachutes, that, that they are very, very rare. And yeah. to to say that anything that we do is, is 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 false. Yeah. I think it's much more likely when someone says they have a parachute that they're trying to sell you something that is no such thing than that they actually have a parachute. Yeah. Uh, there are parachutes. They're out there. They're few and far between. But I think most of what we do is a modest to marginal effect size business. We're in the mm-hmm. modest to marginal effect size business. We're not in the cupcake business. We're not in the parachute business. We're in the modest to marginal effect size business. But I think people forget that's not bad. In the, in the history of medicine, that's pretty good. Yeah. Better than trepanation, bloodletting. You know, you're in your clinic in the modest to marginal effect size business, making yeah. a modest to marginal benefit on your patients. I mean, anytime I feel like you can actually make any benefit, that's kind of a win. That's a win. From like a general internal medicine standpoint. Yeah. Um, a lot of what we do is is marginal to null. And so if, if you make a margin, you know, any moderate benefit is pretty great. That's right. We'll be talking more about marginal to null on future episodes of cancer screening. So you can have <laughs> Adam Mobley come on to talk about that. All right, let's shift gears and let's talk about tumor treating electrical fields. Yeah. There's some brain doctors out there, brain oncologists, radiation therapists, that gave a little bit of pushback about this issue because they point out a few things to me. One, there's no dispute. Glioblastoma multiform is a serious 
disease. It has a very short survival. Mm-hmm. We ought to do better for patients who have that condition. There's no, no doubt in my mind. Um, but I would say the but. I think everyone can agree that something is a bad problem. It's kind of a bigger philosophical thing. You know, we can agree that something is a very bad problem from poverty to, you know, to dying from a cancer to, you know, whatever you want. We can agree it's a bad problem. Just because it's a bad problem doesn't mean you have to be willing to adopt an ineffective solution. I think they're separate, right? Yeah. Problems are bad, and we can com, com, we can have sympathy for a bad problem. We can hope to do better. But the way in which we judge interventions has to be, I think, sort of standardized. I mm-hmm. mean, it's whether or not they work or not. Yeah. This intervention, I would say that the data is not it's not absent. I mean, there's something. But it's an interesting trial. You want to talk a little bit about, I guess, first, what is TTF? Yeah, so that's yeah. a great question. So so first, I want to echo what you said. I am anti-glioblastoma. I yes, think we me are, too. We are We're all right. anti-glioblastoma, right? right? So yeah. in no way was this paper a, a critique of, of how we treat glioblastoma or the effort to do better. Right. So, so tumor-treating fields are a medical device. So it's not a drug. Um, it's a medical device that you place... Um, kind of transmitter arrays on the scalp. So initially for glioblastoma, it's on the scalp. And it emits alternating electric frequencies at, for glioblastoma, it's 200 kilohertz, I believe. Millihertz? Millihertz. That sounds know, more accurate. I don't, it's like it's when you science. tell me the temperature in Celsius. It, yeah. means, it means nothing to me. Um, but but, but the, the yeah. idea is it disrupts the mitosis, yeah, microtubules the microtubules of, of dividing cells. And in glioblastoma, where you have these dividing cells, it can disrupt that process. And there's also some evidence that it's synergistic with chemotherapy. So the combination of chemotherapy with these alternating electric fields kills cancer. And by um, and by evidence, you mean evidence in in vitro, in in, vi- in, mo- in models, right? In mouse models and in thing. And the other thing uh, is you have to shave your head every other day and wear this kind of like. Uh, onerous um, uh, helmet kind of thing. So it's this helmet, and then the electrodes can kind of burn the scalp a little bit, or it burns the skin a little sometimes. And then you have to carry around a um, battery pack, A battery pack, which I I, I found an article that the most recent battery pack, the entire pack, weighs 2.7 pounds, I I believe. I see. So that's a sort of a heavy MacBook. Yes. Um, You also have to, um, uh, somebody was saying online, and I haven't verified this to be true, but um, when I was pushing back on one aspect of the trial design, they say that it actually makes your scalp tingle. Um, so I didn't know that if it if it tingles or doesn't tingle. Well, we'll, we'll kind of talk about why they decided not to do, do it sham. as a okay. sham. But yeah. that was one of the arguments yeah. that they they felt it would be unethical and that um, that the patients would know because their scalp wasn't tingling. But you know, we're both physicians, and I wouldn't have known that it's supposed to make it tingle. that it's supposed to make your scalp tingle necessarily. The other thing is, one might imagine that um, you could sham the tingle e- either with sort of a g- gelatinous, put prepar- some icy hot on there. Yeah, yeah, right. Some sort of a topical, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, gel or ointment that could sham a tingle, or um, perhaps even something about the what the mask is actually doing that will make it tingle a little bit. Correct. So, so anyway, we'll getting to, to the that. trial. Yeah, let's talk about so the trial. Yeah, so the trial was um, so EF14, or um, they they took patients with glioblastoma that had been initially treated with local therapy, so excision if if possible, or biopsy, and then temozolomide. Yeah. And standard then of care. standard and, of care and radi- yeah, radiation if and radiation. Yeah. And then after they finished that initial course, they were subsequently randomized to either continue temozolomide maintenance 
or temozolomide plus this tumor treating field right. device. Right. And they were able to find a small, statistically significant PFS benefit, progression-based mm-hmm. survival benefit. Correct. And in the initial report, an overall survival benefit with a p-value of like 0.03, mm-hmm. just on the good side of the 0.05, not the bad side. 0.051, you pack your bags and you, you, you're thrown out of town. 0.049, you're a winner. That's right. Winner. Okay, so that was the initial result. But since then, um, there's a follow-up paper, I think, in JAMA where they have a little bit more robustness Correct. in that signal. Okay. So this is the trial. This is what people justify the practice on. Correct. Well, and it, and it's been adopted, right? So yeah. it's, it's it's included in the NCCN guidelines mm-hmm. for treating glioblastoma. I see. Um, and I believe it's been FDA approved for this indication as yeah. well. More recently, it was approved for mesothelioma in the absence of a controlled study altogether, and that's a whole other can of worms. That's a very problematic approval, but now they're taking full advantage of the device standards, which the device approved, well, you know, I criticize drug approval because I think the bar is so low you can trip over it. But the nice thing about device approval is the bar is so low, you don't even notice it. You skate right past over that bar. You don't even catch your toe. Yeah. So um, so here we are, one randomized trial. Mm-hmm. Um, people kind of point it out to me online. They say, well, you know what? Temodar also only has one randomized trial that really supports its use in, um, in uh, glioblastoma. Uh, that's also not sham controlled, hmm. and I and I said you know fair enough, uh, but there's some differences here. Um, the use of tamidar and other cytotoxic chemotherapy agents, I would I would humbly argue has a higher pretest probability that it would work in any particular malignancy because of a body of evidence that shows it works in other malignancies. Uh, that we have a lot of data that um, perhaps even a thousand or ten thousand randomized control trials that show a cytotoxic drug. Um, improves outcomes in a lethal cancer. We don't have that for an electrical current that alternates that's placed on the scalp outside of the brain. Um, We simply don't have that pretest probability. Uh, It is an entirely novel mechanism of action. Mm -hmm. And, and, And when things are very new and novel and when things are very off the beaten path, I think the evidence that supports them has to also be uh, quite compelling. Um, And so that's why, I mean, it's not just my opinion. I mean, we'll talk about the editorial stances. Some people actually agree. You, you need a confirmatory study. You need maybe a sham control. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is when you do this study um, and you don't use a sham control, uh, th- this is an intervention that I think changes the way in which people interact with healthcare. Um, it requires an extra caregiving. It requires people checking in on you. It requires making sure this is used correctly. That's all care that's being delivered differently. Um, it's very different than a pill or something like that that you just pop in your mouth. It's a, I think it's a cumbersome intervention. And, and it can change, I think, perhaps the way in which the doctor manages the side effects of your Temodar, the way in which the doctor um, cares for you otherwise. Is mm-hmm. that fair to say? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think one of the interesting things um, uh, in, in the original report that was, I believe, in 2015 in this trial that the patients who got TTF, um, the tumor treating field device, so they had a delay in their progression-free survival, yeah. so they had longer time to progression, but they also were more likely to use second-line chemotherapy agents. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of a discrepancy to me, and, and what that tells me is that those those patients were being treated differently, or they were being more aggressive with treatment, or there's something about them that they were being managed in a different way. Yeah, there's an imbalance in secondary therapy. Typically in these studies where one group has delayed progression over the other, if there's an imbalance in any direction, it's to the group that's progressing faster. They're getting more therapies. And that's what I would expect. And that's what I expect, yeah. yeah. 
and 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 that does make one wonder if this intervention is what it's doing is it's really I think forcing healthcare providers to take better care, supportive care of a patient, not necessarily the electrical fields. Mm-hmm. But this is all speculative. Yeah. I think. Let's I, all. I, I think yeah. the other thought is that you know if I as a patient have this brand new therapy yeah. that is novel and sounds really wonderful, I might be more likely to change the care that that I want or oh, right. change oh, the care that I receive. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about. That. That's quite interesting. Okay, so I think we've pointed out that uh, one one big point, pretest probability this mechanism of action improves outcomes, very, very low because it's hitherto unproven in the history of mankind. Um, very different than drugs, I think. Uh, uh, the way in which this interacts with healthcare systems and patient preferences is complex and, and hitherto un- uh, not fully explored. Um, nevertheless, there are some virtues here. It's a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. The endpoint is survival. I think yep. the PFS is, is neither here nor there, but the endpoint of OS is a real endpoint. Absolutely. I, and I think the, the problem with the progression-free survival as the, the kind of intermediate endpoint mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that the, the radiologists themselves <laughs> were not blinded either. And so, you know, the, the decision of progression, which you've, you've talked a lot about, right, is right. On, based on, you know, radiologic endpoints is, is very subject to bias. And yeah. that having this device can, can influence that. Wait, let's pause on this a second. Are you sure? Because this person online says that radiologists were blind. In, in the blinded review, there's also a PFS benefit, he says. Uh, so they did do a secondary blinded review. That's correct. So that my understanding was the initial, the initial, was the initial read was unblinded. And then there was a secondary read that yeah. was blinded and was centralized. And if there was discrepancy, there was a third reader who would um, review it. But that if, if they decided that there wasn't progression when there was, they would not loop that back because the therapy had already been changed. Right, right. So they didn't change. Like they there was no method to correct the initial error and and you're correct so they did do a, a like a secondary analysis where they kind of corrected for that in some way but but again it goes back to that that issue of if we don't have a sham you know how we interact with those patients how we assess progression changes yeah and even perhaps maybe even compliance with temidar you know at home and in the privacy of their house might be affected by i have this novel thing that's going to help me but i got to do the two together the doctors mm-hmm. say they're synergistic uh, it might be a Temodar reminder, if anything. Um, you know, this is all speculative. Oh, yeah. But the reason I think this speculation is important is because, let's make another point here. If there were seven randomized trials, four sham controlled, three non-sham controlled, and they all showed tumor-treating electrical fields improved survival in brain cancer, lung cancer, pancreas cancer, um, you know, sarcoma, uh, you and I are going to have a different discussion. We're going to be on the tumor treating electrical fields bandwagon. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to say that's just an overwhelming number of studies mm-hmm. you have done. I'm convinced that, you know, although individual studies might have strengths and weaknesses, the totality of the evidence is, I think, yeah. solid. Well, and, and going back to what we said about being anti glioblastoma, I want to be on that bandwagon. Right. right? You like, want to be. I right. want tumor treating fields to be really effective. And, and you know, the, the data from this trial are very encouraging. And, and yeah. in terms of like the, the step forward and you know you know when was the last time there was a a potential change in overall survival for a medication in glioblastoma to this degree right this is really encouraging right but we need to make sure we do it right especially for a novel therapy Right. right where we when we have when we're not sure if the mechanism of action is real that's when we need to be more careful and more um 
systematic about it before we generalize it to everything else. Right. And I think now we'll shift gears and talk about your particular paper. I mm. think we've we've done a good job of talking about this, pros and cons. I, 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 I want to just say that I think reasonable, impartial people can look at this trial and maybe feel differently on the spectrum from where it sounds like you and I are, which is a little bit of guarded optimism, mm -hmm. but still uncertainty, to maybe people who feel less uncertainty and more optimism, that might be the other end of the spectrum. And mm -hmm. I think reasonable people can fall differently. But what we're interested in is whether or not the manufacturer might be encouraging people to fall one way or the other. And that's what you looked at. You mm -hmm. looked at um, editorials that specifically cited this paper and specifically talked about TTF and specifically spun it one way or the other. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so that was the goal is, is to, so we, we searched for editorials or articles um, that were peer reviewed and published. Um, so we kind of took out everything in the news um, and uh, looked at what those authors said about it. And, and essentially it came down into two camps. One was, this is really pretty impressive and we need to implement it versus the other is, is a lot of what you and I have talked about of, of we have some concerns and we want more studies and you know we are optimistic but but before we implement we need to do more right um, and 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 that to me is reasonable that the field has reached these two points but you took it one step further which is you noted that the TTF manufacturer NovoCure has put a fair bit of money into the marketplace. Um, we can choose where we put our money as a manufacturer. We could put our money in, say, double-blind sham control trials, and then I think you're going to be able to influence opinion based on the results of those studies. You could also put the money into dinners where you um, have a nice meal and talk about the virtues of your products. You could put that money into consulting money. It turns out they're putting a lot of money into those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And what you looked at was if you're an editorialist who falls in our camp, which is not a negative camp, but rather a guarded optimism camp. Okay, what's the rate of conflict? And if you're in a group that falls in the other camp, which is the, I'm sold right now, what's the conflict? And let's just point out, there really, there really is no camp that's saying, absolutely, this is a no-go, stop all your trials, this is a useless product. There is no Correct. such camp. Nobody had that opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the guarded optimism or the enthusiastic support. Yes. Okay, so what's the rate of conflict of interest with NovoCure, personal financial payments in both of these categories? All right, so, so we found about 15 of these editorials. It was a smaller number than we'd hoped for, but we found 15. Um, of those, I think nine were in the kind of pro category and six were in the, the guarded optimism category. Um, and then I'm having trouble remember the number of authors out there to my head. I think in the pro category, there are about 35 authors and in the... Um, the guarded optimism category, or yeah, 14. 10 or 12, 14, yeah, something, something like, like that. that yeah. So in that the guarded optimism category, the rate of conflict was essentially zero. Yeah. That I think I found a single author, well, and, and so we looked at either, did they declare conflict of interest in That's the paper, right. or, yeah. or did you find was I later? able to find it online uh, via CMS Open Payments or, um, or any other way. Yeah. Um, and we found a single author who I think received $209. Yeah. That's off the top of my head. Yeah, from like a single meal or something yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in the, the pro category of these 35 authors, two thirds of them had declared or identified conflict of at least $1,000, I believe. And then one third had received over $10,000. Yeah. And I guess I would say, 
you're an internist, so one for ten thousand dollars, that, that's still real money to you, or have you have you gotten too rich already in your? No, I would. I <laughs> it's would. Real money. I mean, that's that's uh, most of these. Uh, there were some that were upwards of twenty or thirty thousand yeah. dollars, and and often these are in like a single paycheck. So I can't remember how many. You know, I I I, I may have gotten one paycheck in my single life that is anywhere close to that. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And and so I, I think that is real money. Yeah, I think it's real money. And and the other side is that you know when you look at other fields and how people are affected by money, it by money, it, it, it really doesn't matter, yeah, it doesn't matter how much yeah. um, people it changes how they act. Yeah, and so that's what I think is is this unspoken thing here, which is that you know reasonable people can fall on these two ends of the spectrum, but when you look at the stated editorial stands and you find it is just oh so lopsided. It's all, all, all the conflict is in the enthusiasm bandwagon. Almost none of the conflict is in the guarded optimism bandwagon. That is a concerning state of biomedicine. To me, it's not even a commentary about TTF. It's a commentary about, um, are, we, are we in a profession that is free to engage with academic ideas, free from the influence of third parties? Or are we in a profession where third parties can put a thumb on the scale? You and I may be in the guarded optimism category. You and I are not billionaires. If we were a billionaire and if we were really motivated, we could have dinners and host dinners where we had guarded optimism TTF dinners, where we talked about, let's get Daryl Francis to talk about why sham controls are important. Let's talk about bias-resistant, bias-susceptible endpoints. Let's talk about how even if you blind the endpoint, the sham is not about blinding the endpoint, it's about blinding the process by which the endpoint is generated. You know, we could teach about sham. We could teach about medical reversals. We could teach about pretest probability. This sounds like a fantastic dinner party. Yeah, well, <laughs> and any any funders out there, I've been actually serious about this dinner idea. How about a non-conflicted, a non-conflicted dinner agenda, non-conflicted conference series? If you're interested, email us at plenary session. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> I but, should, we should also say, I, I have no conflict, financial conflict. With TTF. With makers. TTF or any competitor of TTF. Except for you sold their stock short just before you did this. Definitely. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no you did And I would have to actually say I'd, I have no conflict with TTF and no conflict with, as I say, any for-profit entity in the healthcare space, but uh, particularly any pharmaceutical company. I'm not in the Temidar business either. I mean, I don't no. know. Uh, uh, the only uh, intellectual conflict I have is the same that Michael has endorsed, which is we're both anti-GBM. We want GBM to go away, and that's true. Um, but uh, we are also pro-evidence, and we want reliable causal evidence to guide treatment decisions and here i'm not going to say the evidence is the worst i've seen it's not mm -mm. Uh, but it's not the best i've seen either it's something in between and so i think guarded optimism is the right stance and again seven seven randomized trials seven are sham and different malignancies boom i'm sold hook line and sinker one randomized trial not sham never been replicated a second approval in mesothelioma with a non-randomized study oh boy that doesn't make me so happy just a matter of the totality of the data anyway so here we are um Okay, so I think, you know, this is concerning to me. It's concerning because of the influence at stake. I don't know. What thoughts did you have when you when you probed this data? Hmm. So, you know, I think first off, uh, uh, this is a very limited study that you and I did, right? It, it has a lot of flaws and it is not perfect and it, it's it's possible that, that this is all random, but you're hurting my feelings. But yeah, <laughs> no. I, I'm the one that did most. Oh of it. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm hurting my own feelings. Oh shoot, yeah, he so, actually he did do. Most so of it. you yeah. know, I think that um, 
uh, taking even with that kind of grain of salt, just yes. realizing that there is this huge discrepancy and yes. that, you know, almost every single paper that was, you know, profusely pro TTF had, I think, over a thousand dollars of conflict yeah. in the authorship. Yeah. And that's real. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I think that is concerning and, and it may not be significant at all. We've talked about that. All of these financial conflict, um, studies are all associative, right? right? There's no direct causative relationship and right. there will never be. Right. Um, yeah. But when you just look at it at face value, it's a big discrepancy and I think yeah. it's hard to ignore. You know, I, it's interesting actually. Um, uh, the only entity that would actually kind of be capable of doing a causative study would be a company who, would, who could actually randomize providers to the intervention or not. Actually, I, I mean, companies would never have to disclose that. They may not even have to register that they're doing such a study. They could do it internally for, um, it wouldn't even be called a random, it would be for marketing purposes. Um, they could do sort of a marketing study. I bet they have. I bet they have, yeah, you know? They're smart. They're smart, and the, I mean, the reason they they give money to physicians is because it works. It has and, to I work, mean, yeah. And it's, it's been shown in, in our literature from our side that yeah. it influences Prescribing patterns, decision patterns. patterns. Yeah, we talked in the last podcast with Stacy about the Aaron Mitchell paper. There's some nice work by Kesselheim, Joe Ross and colleagues, great paper in the BMJ. There's some nice work by Lisa Barrow um, that looked at, I think, um, conflict of interest among editorialists in the wake of the hormone replacement therapy Mm -hmm. um, boondoggle circa 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, I always say with people – you know, sometimes you get pushback and say, how come you're not focusing all your efforts on intellectual bias, intellectual conflict of interest? I say, well, look, when intellectual conflict of interest has 200 publications plus uh, that document it and measure it and quantify it, then sure. The other thing I think that's very slippery with intellectual bias is, um, and it's not to say I don't think it's the case. I think there's something important. There's something to be said for being able to come up with a priori definitions and apply that to situations. For instance, someone could say that, look, Barack Obama had an intellectual bias that he wanted health care for all. He had that bias since his early 20s when he started to see some things that affected his intellectual thinking. And then he went forth into the world with that bias and he made sure it happened, you know. But do we think of that bias the same way you would think of is if, say, for instance, a president of the United States, I don't know, owned a piece of real estate right across the street and would lease it out to, you know, uh, high end foreign dignitaries while passing foreign policy that supported those foreign... No, we think about those so differently. One would be sort of almost an overt act of corruption, and the other would be sort of just the natural way in which people have ideas. Anyway, (laughs) it's a big digression. You're laughing because this has nothing to do with reality at all, but... um, uh, But, uh, you know, but I do think it's it's, it's interesting. Um, You know, somebody was on this podcast earlier, and they're talking about sort of a very large effect. Um, Oh, I know what it was. It's the Akthar. Uh, Daniel Hartung, Akthar is a corticotropin, which is this some, I don't want to say the word I'm trying about to say, but it's a, it is something of highly disputed evidence base that has a huge price that is Medicare is being paid for. And there was a strong relationship with the people who prescribed Akthar gel by Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and those in whom there's financial conflict of interest. And Daniel Hartung did a lot of that work to map that out. And, and I've told him that I hadn't seen sort of such, such, such strong signals I think one of the reason that we see a strong signal here and that was seen in Akthar um, is that this is a sort of one-hit wonder kind of company. It's a company that has really one product, and so it allows you to look at their payments in a very clean way. When you start to look at it for Pfizer or Amgen or something, it's a—I mean—they make so many products that it's hard to know, uh, you know, what one payment here means and what 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 its purpose may have been. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'd say I think it's really good work. It appeared in the Journal of Cancer Policy. It's out now. I think I'll tweet it out when, when we put out this podcast. 
um, you did a, you did two projects that really took a lot of your time. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Did you gain anything from it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of experience with Excel. Um, a lot of time with you. No, I, I, I think um, so two negatives there. <laughs> so more time with me or the paperclip? Which was it? Um, the paperclip. That Excel paperclip. Oh, that, that Excel helps paperclip. You. That helps you. He never actually helps though. <laughs> um, and same with me. It never. <laughs> just tell you you're doing a good job. Pat you on the back. Yeah. The um, the uh, I, I enjoyed the the TTF paper more, as you can probably tell just yeah, from I us guess, talking yeah. about it. There's. Yeah. I just feel like there's a lot more meat there, and and how dare you? The money side is very interesting. Killing me. It also it took less of my time, so that was probably I see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Part of it. But uh, no, I. I Again, we've talked a lot about the financial side, and and I think it's very interesting, and and uh, there's a lot a lot of money in involved in all of this. And Kaiser draws a full firewall. It's worth pointing out. As a Kaiser physician, you're not allowed to consult for any drug companies, is my understanding. Oh, I've never been in that position, so I, I don't see. know that I <laughs> yeah, I think... had to come up against that. That's probably true. I don't know for sure though. Uh, and 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 then the other thing I always like to point out is if you were an employee of Pfizer you would not be allowed to consult for Novacure. It is stricter for you to work for Pfizer than it is for you to work at a university. Yeah. I think that's just an interesting observation because of course, conflict of interest had nothing to do with anything as some people would want you to believe. Then yeah. why could I not work for Amgen and consult for Pfizer on the side? Yeah. Have at it. It's all confluence of interest. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing, and, and I've never seen any data on this, but like, what do patients think about physicians that have a lot of conflict yeah. like if, if you see a doctor and the doctor says i recommend this medication and oh by the way the makers of this drug gave me forty thousand dollars like I'm, how do patients see that i'm going to pull it up is pull there a up. paper yeah there's i think the paper oh here it is the impact of disclosing financial ties in research and clinical care by steve joffe and colleagues oh by Lecourse and colleagues of which steve joffe is an author systematic review Patients believe that financial ties influence professional behavior and should be disclosed. Patients, physicians, and research participants believe financial ties decrease the quality of research evidence, and for some, knowledge of financial ties would affect willingness to participate in research. Hmm. No study assessed the impact of physician financial disclosure on patients' willingness to receive clinical care. So mostly documented research, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and in no way am I criticizing anyone for receiving money. Right, like that—that's not what this is about either. That's not what you're doing, but I'll that's do not that. what you—I'll leave <laughs> that to okay. you. Okay, I, yeah. You know, I, but I think you know, in my own life, if I told patients like, "I want you to take this medication," and by the way, they pay me a lot of money, yeah, patients would scoff at that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's that would be my anecdotal impression. I'll say a few things about disclosure. One is, I I wonder, as you wonder. What is the impact of disclosure on the patient's perception of care, on their actual choices, on what they do? I think that's important, and, and there is some, some work that explores that. The second thing, I think, is what is the impact of disclosure on the psychology of the person receiving the payment? Uh, I believe there's a paper, which I'll have to track down later, that suggests that people who know their payments will be disclosed someday are actually less likely to engage in those relationships and may, hmm. may come to second guess, like, is it actually worth it for me to have this disclosure, um, to have this relationship? So is it a deterrent? Is there a deterrence feature to it? The third thing about disclosure that's underappreciated is that disclosure facilitates research like the research you did. Without disclosure, you could not do your research as a tool um, to study the problem even more. I guess I would say that I think reasonable people may disagree on what 
the appropriateness or inappropriateness of these financial ties is, I think, you know, we've written some papers, not you and I, but I have written some other stuff where I argue that the same kind of financial entanglements that would be considered political corruption in academic mm-hmm. sense are considered just a con- just a footnote, just a conflict of interest. It's a paper we published in the Hastings Center. I think that um, part of the reason why it is so hard to get reform here is, I guess, a couple fold. One, I think people who often receive the disclosures may feel as if they deserve the disclosures. And, you know, they, they might deserve something because actually these are people who worked very, very hard. They're very, very smart. They do really good research. Um, they probably had deferred income for at least a decade or two decades when they did all their training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they may feel like they're entitled to actually the, the fruits of what they've earned. I've paid my dues. Uh, now let me enjoy some of the financial dis- ties and that come with, you know, the opportunity uh, second, they're probably making less than they would make in private sector or in uh, private practice, and so they may say that this is a way to kind of bridge that gap, to take away that sort of that loss. Um, so I think that's part of the reason it persists. I think the other part of the reason it persists so greatly is that at the end of the day, doctors are a really revered position in America, and um, doctors, like other people who are revered, probably get away with more than what people who aren't revered are. So the same behavior from a congressman which might get uh, public scorn, will in your in your family physician might be like well, he's a good guy. He's my family physician, or she's she's a fantastic family physician. Um, it might be treated differently. And I think so, those are some of the some of the things. But uh, the literature I had been reading earlier, and I'll have to pull it all up, which is that in general the disclosure actually leads the person being told to have greater confidence in the person confessing their sins. Hmm. It's sort of a um, uh, it, it sort of cuts the other way. Yeah. But it's an interesting paper. Uh, you wanted to end by saying there are a number of ongoing studies of the uh, of this TTF. Yeah, so um, one is in pancreatic cancer, one is in non-small cell lung cancer, and there have been phase two trials of, of both of those that have been published recently. Um, neither of, of them are sham controlled. I see. Well, randomized is better than non-randomized. Mm-hmm. Sham is better than no sham. Uh, but any confirmatory study is better than no confirmatory study. I think the real questions will be asked if all of the other randomized trials are null, and this is the only setting in which it works. And I'm sure, like many things in life, if somebody were to come up with a biological reason why this would work and other things wouldn't, we can all come up with said reasons after the fact. I recently read um, some article about um, Supreme Court jurisprudence, and the author said, it makes a lot more sense if you think about it in terms of this way. These are smart people trying to come up with arguments to reach the conclusions they've already reached than the other way around. It makes more sense. And sometimes when you read editorials of medical papers, it's smart people trying to come up with arguments to reach the conclusions they've already reached. And and that's that's what worries you when financial ties go so much hand in hand with those conclusions. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think all of us do that, right? Like we have our idea and then we kind of make up the course to get there. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard not to. It's hard that's, not to. That's part of what clinicians do those you have to question yourself yeah it's literally the skill that's taught in every term paper right come up with your thesis and then come up with whatever garbage gets you to that thesis <laughs> well michael hayes it's been a pleasure to have you on the plenary session stage to take us through these two important papers i think we will let um we will let others decide which is the most important but let me just check how much they're both been cited i anticipate the number will be small <laughs> You can cut that out if you want. No, that's good. You can keep it. Association (laughs) between conflict of interest and published position on TTF.
zero citations. But it's only been out in a few, but come on, a few weeks. That's yeah. not fair. It's not fair at all. That one's brand new. It's brand new. They're just, people are just ready for it. Now let's go to the parachute one. I wonder how many people will cite our parachute paper to recommend that theirs is also a parachute, the ultimate, <laughs> the meta irony of meta research. Ah, most medical practices are not parachutes, a citation analysis, nine. It's oh, not bad. It's not bad. I'm famous. <laughs> oh, the altmetric score, 449 for that parachutes paper. That means, as they say, people are talking about it, top 5%. Now let's look up the altmetric score for the other one. Three. The other, the other one that sounds three. better, right? It's, a <laughs> it's closer to one, closer which is great. To, yeah. It's, uh, hmm, I wonder how that scale goes. Okay. <laughs> well, but people will be talking about it after this podcast. There'll be nothing but dinner party conversation. Yes. Did you see the link between editorial stance and financial conflict of interest? It's riveting. Uh, so, I don't know. History will, history will be the great arbiter. Uh, as all our work, but I, uh, I I wish to commend you for both these projects. I think they're very interesting. You know, uh, it, we don't have all the answers, but I think it's, it's you're scratching on the surface of something interesting. And uh, I hope to have you back on the plenary session stage uh, when we do something again in the future. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks. I'm here in plenary session HQ with Dr. Stacy Dusitzina. She's an associate professor of health policy at Vanderbilt University, and she raised a topic that I think is so interesting. So I thought, okay, let's just go back on for a little bonus content. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Okay, so we were talking um, health policy medicine Twitter. What were you saying? <laughs> yeah, so you know we were we were discussing issues around. Um, recommendations to trainees and one thing that I've heard people bring up is how to engage in Twitter effectively or why should they engage in Twitter yeah. at all yeah and it's been really an interesting um, I was a late adopter I'm always a late adopter <laughs> of technology uh-huh. uh, and I was kind of forced into it by someone at UNC who uh-huh. I was friends with who mm-hmm. was very active on Twitter um, he actually kept emailing me tweets, and I was like, oh, my God, that's super annoying. Uh, <laughs> so I was right, like, yeah. I guess I have to get on Twitter, so he stops emailing me tweets. Right, right. But, you know, I think one of the things that comes up a lot uh, for my trainees and for others is how do I engage with this medium effectively and sort of the do's and don't, yeah, don'ts yeah. of Twitter. I'm curious, yeah. Um, because it can be a high-risk situation for some people. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think. And what do you tell them? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I, I kind of just share from my experience. Yeah. And one of the things that I think has been very valuable, there were t- two things I noticed right off the bat. One was all the journalists are on Twitter. That's right. True. So journalists are out there and they're, and they're and watching they're, right. and they are reaching out to people who they think have expertise and things they're writing about. So it's a very good way to become known to journalists for the area that you're working in. That's a great point. Um, in fact, it was how I first was connected with a journalist at a major news organization, and then that has sort of since snowballed, you know, working with them on a study and providing um, data for an article yeah. is creating these partnerships and friendships and collaborations. That um, are important. Absolutely, yeah. and there's mm-hmm. a, you know, I think for as many times as I've been cited in a news story, yeah. there have probably been 10 times as many kind of education calls, right, where you have just kind of long chats about, you know, what a specific policy means or, 
you know, the reporter really needs someone to confirm like their gut sense about what's going on, but they, they need some insight. And so I think that I just want to make one point point yeah. on that thing. I think that I mean that's a that's a that's a public service that like academics should do. Absolutely. And I, I saw somebody on Twitter once complain that he this person talked to some reporter for like an hour and was not quoted in the article, and then like a bunch of people us correctly pointed out that that's like so narcissistic that you know okay fine you're not quoted in one article but you know that's what reporters need somebody to kind of like give them the lay of the land right. and like educate them about the topic so it's a better story and then in the future maybe you'll be quoted in one article and you can clip it and put in your little scrapbook if that's what's important to you yeah exactly i mean i think that (laughs) i think there's only so many links to articles that you want to highlight on your cv right after a certain point it looks exhausting so of course you know i'm not going to comb through media reports to see where i'm quoted it's just not not (laughs) worth that additional effort yeah yeah so i think that kind of considering part of it as public service um only once have i ever been annoyed when it was like a significant amount of intellectual content that I had contributed yeah, was taken yeah. without credit, yeah. uh, which is very frustrating. But that's super different th- than somebody and, calling yeah. you and saying, here's what I think is happening, not could you tell me what you think is happening? Right, right. It's a different question. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's one thing that is really important is realizing that if you want your work to be disseminated and you want actual reporters to write about it so that it's disseminated to the American public in particular, um, Twitter's a good place to start to be connected. Um, Also sharing your research is really great on Twitter because you can add, you know, kind of these small chunks, you know, little tweets about what's going on in the paper with specific graphics that you may be want people to get the bottom line of the paper right. without having to read the whole thing right, right. Up immediately and glean from the very long discussion section, yeah. you know, what the main point is. So I think that that's useful. Um, the other thing that I just think from an information source is you've, you've it's like drinking from a fire hose. You have to be careful. Mm-hmm. You don't want to follow everybody and mm-hmm. everything first. Mm-hmm. like Or you do and then you unfollow things that are providing more noise than they are providing benefit. Thank you. Yep. And mm-hmm. so I That's found I when yeah. I first signed on, I had, you know, a reasonably small amount of things I was following. But I was like, oh, I'll follow New York Times. And then I was like, no, yeah. I'll follow New York Times Health. Right, right. Right. So like <laughs> right, realizing right, right. very quickly yeah. how you can be overloaded with information. But I started to realize um you know, even in the first couple of weeks that I knew about studies that had come out that were in my specific area of research a few days faster than other people in my field who really kept up. Right. So I would have colleagues who would send me a link to a study several days after I had seen it and already read it because I saw it on Twitter. Right. And so I think that from a, like, if you can tailor it correctly, your information that's coming in is like a really well-defined literature review. Yeah. So you can keep up with what's going on. It's like um, like a, a media outlet that's tailored for your like unique combination of quirky interests. Oh, yeah. Right. So it, I, I, it gets you exactly what you want if you tailor it correctly. But you have to be willing to unfollow um, if you find that you're getting too much noise in, in the signal. That's well put. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, um, has the sword cut the other way? Are there downsides to it or things that you you didn't like? 
So um, the downside for me is it can be distracting. Um, and I think that probably most academics suffer from this sense of they're not good enough or not doing enough, like the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome, yeah. Um, and I think that Twitter may have a chance to magnify mm, that to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's kind of getting like a feed of all the success that's happening around you. Hashtag or... humble to receive a new award. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's so many humble that. people that humbled, it's... Constantly um, humbled, yeah. So I think that if you are prone to you know, kind of get distracted or feel down when you see too much like influx of, you know, celebrating things that you just have to manage that part um, or just manage what days you're dealing with yeah, Twitter, right? Well put, yeah. um, so you advise your trainees to get on. So they don't listen to me. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about like, is some of this like a, an age dynamic or something uh -huh. like who's on versus who's not on. But I, I do think I've encouraged a lot of collaborators and colleagues uh -huh. who um, do similar work. It's like be on Twitter. And when you have a paper come out, tweet about it. Yeah. Don't and be, actually, yeah, yeah. you know, if a lot of people in your respective area are on Twitter, it's a good idea to be on it and tweeting occasionally. Like yeah. you don't have to tweet every day. Yeah. You don't have to be on it every day. But we also know all those people who have thousands of followers because they're famous, but they never tweet anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, right. that's a worthless follow. Oh, I unfollow those people, right. <laughs> I agree, it's worthless. Um, the other downside I think is sometimes you can see the ugly underside of um, kind of the academic politics. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, I've seen there recently has been a bunch of back and forth about a paper that yes, was published I know the paper, yeah, yeah in the mm -hmm. last couple of days it's a little harsh and it's hard i think for people on twitter mm -hmm. so there's this um people obviously can be magnified more if they have a lot of followers than if they don't and also based on their status in the field so or where they work it has a, a lot to do with it and so i think in a way that people can kind of abuse their role and if they are well liked or well connected they can actually have a lot of other people jump on that same bandwagon so it it can turn into a little bit of academic bullying mm -hmm. in a way that i think isn't super productive there's a fine line right there's this being able to give feedback that is critical but constructive um and providing like a pushback on the messaging. But sometimes I think, especially if that the people who you're criticizing aren't on Twitter yeah. and aren't responding to it, it makes it a little bit hard to see what's going on. It seems very one-sided. And, you know, I think that, like, I, I don't have a stake in this particular debate. Right, um, me neither, yeah. And I actually don't know who's right. I, like, I haven't looked into it. And the, yeah, there's like, interested. no, but yeah, yeah. right. There's a, yeah. a lot of uh, passion, passion and very detailed like critiques mm -hmm. that I think are, would be hard to tease out what's, ex mm -hmm. what exactly is going on. You don't do too much. Um, you tweet, mm -hmm. use it well. You don't criticize too much. You don't criticize yeah. other people's work too much. Yeah. I, um, so somebody, um, that, we both know well once said something like you're a little less combative than i am i was like i would say i'm a lot not less. Combative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a little less yeah yeah i i'm not yeah. um yeah. i guess in general i feel like 
I like to think that people are really trying to do their best work. Um, I don't typically find Twitter as the best outlet for criticizing someone's work. I would rather reach out to that person. And in fact, I've seen this happen um, where I've had colleagues who have had research that is kind of different results than a big paper that's been published. And they've reached out to the authors to try to say, look, we're finding something really different here. I'm very concerned. I found this huge problem with the data. And I feel like what, what the message you're promoting is maybe based on like yeah, some wrong. assumptions that aren't yeah. good. Yeah, it's yeah. wrong. But doing that in a way that sort of assumes that gives them the benefit of the doubt that, you know, it, it is a mistake because I think that's maybe the other thing. I have made mistakes. I have never had mistakes that I've made change the results yeah, the in a way that would have changed yeah, yeah. the conclusion. But I've found coding errors that I personally have made that are horrifying. But it's like, I, I'm i a careful coder. Yes. And it's just a matter of like, all of us make mistakes. It would be easy to be the person who made a mistake. Um, and so I try to give people a pretty wide birth. Um, I don't know, maybe I should be a little bit more provocative because like you definitely have no but I guess I would be curious about you know how you felt that it's advanced your career because like or, you've actually or crippled it or crippled no, I, <laughs> <laughs> no who knows yeah well there have been huge ups and huge downs uh, for that's, you I think right? I think it's like I think that's a apt way to put it I guess I'd say um, it's funny that you raised this topic because my last bonus episode, I see you're not up to date on the plenary session podcast, was on like how to use Twitter uh, effectively. And I went on a numerous rants that I think some of these listeners will have heard. Oh, I'm going to download it on the plane right uh, back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, um, I guess I'll say like, you know, I think like you and I are like in sync on, on like 90% and there's like this 10% we're slightly different. But I think, I don't know, maybe it's just like personality types and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. I think it's like a healthy difference. But I guess I'd say the part that we're like totally in sync on is you know I encourage people to get on there I think at a minimum it's got like two roles one it's kind of like a LinkedIn page it's like who's this person what's their title tweet articles you've done keep it like a running bibliography like just show the world like you don't have to reveal everything about yourself but just a little bit about yourself mm -hmm. so that's one of the things I talk about um, two it's a reader it's like it's like a new way to get information like yeah. I, I talked about how in the old days I'd every morning I had a list of websites I'd used to go to in like the early 2000s like New York Times and Slate you know all these websites yep. I would look through some articles now this is just one more of the readers I use it just happens to be as you put really nicely it's a reader that's giving you content that's like unique to your kind of quirky world that you live in one of the things I went on a big rant about was like I do think that most of your tweets should be about like your content expertise mm -hmm. like you know, people don't want to listen to me give you advice on how to like have a backyard garden or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that might be of some interest to me and it might be of some interest yeah. to you, but like if I wanted to know about gardening, I go to somebody who knows how to do it well and right. I wouldn't go to myself. Um, but I think there's something to it like, it doesn't mean that you should be 100% on point all the time, but the bulk of what you're talking about should be like kind of what people are interested in or like you'll get unfollowed like you pointed out, I think. Yeah. So I think that's like all where we see like 100% eye to eye. Um, I guess the one thing I think, and you know, maybe it's a it's a place that is just shifting a lot. It's changing a lot, which is like when should you push back and how much should you push back about articles? And that's something that I admittedly do quite a bit of, and I push back and often kind of harshly, especially when I think it's bad. 
And maybe it's because I feel like, how can I put it? Maybe it's a little bit because of like my my focus on cancer drugs and stuff and is just slightly, we have a lot of similar interests, but it's just slightly different in, in one sense, which is like a lot of the things I push back on is I feel like there's a company, a message, uh, they're trying to push this product. There are all these paid KOLs, like, you know, yeah. touting it. And it's just like a juggernaut of saying, do this, do this, do this. And then you read the paper, and it's just like so many things wrong with it. And nobody's talking about it. And then part of me is like frustrated that, like, that all these experts are saying this without really critically evaluating it. They didn't write the paper. They got a medical writer to write it, yeah. you know. And so that's maybe why it comes out, come out a little bit harsh against it. Um, I think that's such an important distinction, though. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I, I said to you earlier yeah. was that in my work, under trying to understand access to cancer drugs, I have to start at a place that we want to pay for them, right? right? That they right. have value and that we want people to be using them. That's sort of a an implicit assumption of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to fix a system to better accommodate the treatments. But I think it's such a huge point that there is so much garbage out there. Right. So, you know, when I'm thinking about the papers I would comment on, they're typically not in that space of so much conflict of interest and so much messaging that's around, like, the promotion of a product that really shouldn't be promoted. And I do think that you're exactly right. You, if you want to be the voice of reason, you can't be subtle, yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you have to, you're, it may not be the way that I interact on Twitter, but I don't think that I, as a non-clinician have the grounds to do that in a lot of those cases. Mm -hmm. So I do have expertise in trials. Like mm -hmm. I of course, have, yeah. you, you know, worked, worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. I could criticize that, but I think there's something really different about being a person who is clinically trained doing that pushback um, versus someone who's trained like outside of the clinical space. So I think that your voice is going to be more impactful in that particular feedback loop than mine would be. They'd be like, yeah, that's just a dumb PhD. <laughs> well, no, I don't think they'd say that. But I think, I mean... Behind closed doors. <laughs> Maybe not on Twitter, right, Abby? <laughs> I think there... Um, but I do think there's a bunch of people who always like... There's no matter... No matter how much training or what type of doctor you are, there's always somebody else out, out there who's happy to say, you don't have enough expertise. Oh, sure. You, you don't see enough patients with this one rare disease. Oh, you see other things, too. You know, there's all reasons why you can discredit yeah. the person. That's common on Twitter, I think. You weren't working on this trial protocol yeah all right you didn't you didn't write this protocol paragraph did you now okay okay fine yeah so that's what it takes to be uh you know to comment but i guess i'd say like i do i i believe that different people have different personality types and 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 there's sort of a range of how people speak on twitter i think there's stuff that's out there that that crosses the line is a little too harsh i i think there's some stuff out there that is pushes back firmly uh, often with humor um, maybe sometimes it comes across a little too harsh to some people I think there's also this kind of mentality that we all have which is that if somebody hits your arguments really really hard and smashes all your arguments it's very easy to kind of feign and say oh I'm insulted by your tone I don't like your tone even when when all my arguments have been trashed, though, I'm happy to say, Stacey, I don't like your tone. You know, <laughs> you know. So I think there's some disingenuousness there, but I guess I mean I don't know the right answer about 
I, I, I can't I can't pretend that I know and I, I know different people can use it differently effectively I will talk about a little bit about like the, la the last point which is I do think it's a bit of a double-edged sword the good things is people know of your work they read your articles they might read things they otherwise wouldn't read mm -hmm. I guess I feel grateful that you know some of our papers were published in journals that probably do not enjoy vast readerships but because of a really perhaps well done tutorial or something like that we got a lot of readers to an article they might otherwise yeah. have missed so that's like a nice way to use it and like you said like it connects you with journalists or other people in the space which can lead to you know education phone calls maybe even go give a lecture or something like that i think some of the downsides have been i think what you're talking about that there is like i don't know people perceive that somebody has a lot of followers or something like that and and I think the downsides in my particular case have been like people feel like oh he has a lot of followers so therefore um, you know he must be frivolous because you can be fr you can only have a lot of followers if you're frivolous and I was like well I don't I don't believe that that's the case but no. perhaps somebody else might feel that and I think that the followers don't track with traditional metrics of academic prestige and and there may be many people who came up in an era where they felt as if they've paid their dues and now there's some young person out there who's doing what I've done for a long time and I paid my dues and this young person perhaps is not and now this young person's getting too much attention for this and so I think there may be some resentment issues that that kind of come out into play um, and and I think it's also kind of a time sink and if you and you, I think you're smart to not get sucked into too many kind of back and forths not because of any other reason than like it takes a lot of your time up and yeah i think it i think it would probably my personality too i don't like to be in conflict like some yeah. some people actually get kind of fired up like it gets them uh more engaged to be in a in a debate yeah whereas i i don't like to be in conflict and i think i tend to be um i need like i like to sit with a thought for a bit you know which doesn't it's not really conducive to huge back and forth like I I have opinions but I also like to think about problems from you know the point of view of the other person like what's mm -hmm. informing their point of view why are they coming at a problem in a totally different way than I would um, and so that to me is another reason why I I don't find the forum a place to um, push back on others work but I actually really appreciate when people do because I think it helps to really try to create some conversations about mm -hmm. responsibility in, in research. Like you might be aware of the uh, paper on the moral hazard of using uh, naloxone for people who have overdosed, uh -huh. right? the Jennifer Doliak and, and then there's some debate about whether or not a systematic review was actually systematic or something like that. There's a huge pushback on this yeah, paper. In yeah, this, in this particular paper, it was framed in a way, so it's a it was a working paper yeah. um, for NBER, yeah. and um, the team, the two people who wrote it are economists, and yeah. we're coming at the problem from an economics framework, and uh, that got so much, like, very heated pushback from advocates and yeah. people working in the substance abuse and mental illness space. Because they felt space. it undermined naloxone treatments and such. Right, yeah. because it was framed as though, like, maybe it's a bad idea to revive people. Be you know, it's like the moral hazard of reviving people. It's right. like, should we just let people die? Yeah. Is kind of the, the you know, implicit yeah. kind of yeah. thought behind that. Which, you know, again, not trying to assign any blame to either position, but... You know, I think one of the things that was interesting reading about it as, again, someone who's just interested in, you know, both public health and economics 
and hearing kind of the debate on either side and seeing kind of groups standing up for their yeah. relative positions. And but then also seeing the harm that was being done. So one of the things that, you know, I think some of those uh, reports that were coming out after were that states were starting to backtrack on access to these treatments. Right, right. In and yeah. you're thinking about, from a public health standpoint, how hard it is to make gains in access to treatment for people with substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. And then having a paper that calls into question whether it's beneficial to do so without really framing the problem or actually, I think in that particular case, one thing that was very difficult were some of the assumptions that yeah. were based on kind of clinically what would happen or yeah. you know what was going on with people yeah. might not be fully based in reality another good example of um i mean another example of i think where the pushback was helpful was um uh your your co-author hannah sanoff which is something that we'll talk about in the other in the other longer discussion about a paper that you had done on serafinib somebody tweeted out sort of a, a contrary paper that said of course it was the, a great drug in this thing but of course it had immortal time bias it was loaded with immortal time bias and and she went there you know right away and said you haven't adjusted for guarantee time or immortal time yeah um that's a helpful correction yeah i mean that's just boom you stomp out the, the yep this is what was wrong here yeah, right there um i mean the, oh, I think there's yeah. a I think one of the different the things that maybe people should keep in mind yeah. is how to engage and critically like evaluate and provide context for what, you know, a bad study, yes. a study that should yes. not have been published in the first place but the peer review did not did not weed it out. Yeah. Um, there have been many studies that I use in teaching examples yes, that would too. fall right. under that yes. that umbrella yes. where you can say take a look at the study and let's walk through the problems. Yes. That's a critique of the study. Yes. I think the challenging thing on Twitter is like, it feels very personal yes. if the authors are on Twitter and yeah. if they're not, then it feels like a one-sided <laughs> <Right. laughs> like, right. yeah. issue. So like, I think there is this importance of being able to critique the study yes. without critiquing the like, person, throwing a person yeah. under I, the bus. And, and I think so, some even senior people need a little thicker skin to separate the yeah, two. Yeah, absolutely, because I think that's part of the issue that happened with that um, paper on moral hazard. Yeah. Was it became this personal, very personal. You know, thing, yeah. you're attacking these women who wrote this paper, and you know. And that wasn't the point. It yeah. was like a level of frustration not having public health voices and people with mental health issues voices in that paper and the damage it could do to access. But I think that when it starts to look like a personal attack, then you're undermining yourself in that case by criticizing it in a way that attacks a person. Mm -hmm. Because then it looks like you have some agenda against that person and not that they have a pretty poorly designed study yeah i i haven't um I, and i think that's an such an important distinction attack the the argument not the person uh the way to do that always is like the best thing to do is you walk into something you don't like um you restate the other person's position in in, in a way as fair and perhaps even more eloquent than the other person stated and then you just mm -hmm. explain very patiently you know what were the things that were wrong in that position just sort of just like the classic debate sort of style and i do think that I haven't studied this, but I suspect um, that, like, if you look at what really resonates and what is actually persuasive to the audience, which is really the people you're trying to reach, the people who are kind of open-minded on this, very rare you persuade the other person you're you're discussing with. But I do think for the audience, 
Um, I think the audience is persuaded by like somebody saying like, oh, this is the paper and these are three things that I think are limitations or, or that they're incorrect. And if you adjusted for these three things, it probably would flip the conclusion. So that's why I'm very critical of the conclusion. And and then if it so happens to be that the conclusion favors the person who's making hand over fist money from having that conclusion who funded <laughs> it. I mean, I think those are kind of problematic things. Maybe point that out. Yeah. yeah. So we had this. Um, while not on Twitter, it was um, one of our papers had a letter written to the editor criticizing our our paper and uh, this was a paper led by Aaron Wynn who is a graduate student of mine who's now faculty and it was really kind of funny because we had our first draft of the response to the letter uh, pointing out you know, it's sort of like if you wrote an angry email, never <laughs> intending to send it. Uh-huh. So like the first draft was us kind of like, you know, venting a little bit internally. Yeah. yeah. But pointing out the financial conflict of interest from the author of the letter that yeah. was criticizing yeah. us, which was completely clear that they were so biased in, yep. in their criticism. Yeah. Um, and then, we, you know, we sort of sat down with this draft that was very blunt about yeah. the financial conflict of interest from the author of the letter. Yeah. And then we're like, okay, let's tone this down by like, you know, twenty percent <laughs> of the current <laughs> right, level right, of anger, right, 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 right. and yeah. publish that. And I think that's another thing to maybe, you know, when you're on Twitter thinking about doing this critique, it's like, okay, you could say, hey, here's a screenshot of the open payments database for this Joker, yeah, you know, like, yeah. and so this is why they're saying this and willing to publish something that's kind of garbage. The other alternative is take it down by a couple of notches <laughs> and, and give people the information uh-huh, uh-huh. in a way that, you know, if you run into that person at a conference, yeah. they don't like punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's just kind of like this little bit of a it dance. Sounds like you're giving me quite, quite personal <laughs> advice here because... Um, well, you know, many years ago, that was in some debate on Twitter, and the debate was, I don't know, it's kind of a silly premise, but it was like, do oncologists have an obligation? Oh, no, that was hilarious. That was one of my favorite sets of tweets from you. So I, I don't oh, mean to, don't, to oh, call you out. No, no, that's okay. But I do think, no, I mean, I think it's, it's I mean, it's fair. You're right. I mean, it, we should always kind oh, of. Oh, but yours also was not. At one person. It was not yeah, one person. I grouped it. Yeah. So, right? So it, was it's like, like, it was like 10 people in a debate, and like half were like, oncologists should not. Um, one, we shouldn't care about drug prices, none of our business. Uh-huh. And we should keep our mouth shut about it. And the other side was like, look, I mean, our patients are paying these copays, which is we're going to talk about in the other uh, podcast. Um, our patients are paying these copays. We got to we got to champion our patients. They can't afford these drugs. And so then the debate was raging. There's no consensus. It's going to go nowhere. And then I tweeted out like one slide. I was like, oh, conflict of interest among the five people who, um, you know, think it's not <laughs> of our business. And it's like ab- median payment, $60,000. And it's like conflict of interest among the people who, um, you know, think we should speak out zero, you know, so it's like just yeah. night and day. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. but again, you're not like individually listening one single yeah. person and I think that's But they might where... want to punch me in the face when they... <laughs> sure, but <laughs> yeah. I mean like yeah. you'll have the other 10 people who didn't have conflicts who come to your rescue. <laughs> yeah, but you know we spent all this time talking about like the right way to kind of talk critically about a paper um, but Larry Houston said kind of humorously the other day on Twitter that we don't talk about like all the um, like endless backslapping and praise that gets said there. There's like just constant praise and flattery. And I yeah. think I get tired of that reading that all the time. Yeah, I think that's important. I think the other thing that is a real risk is this assumption that 
everything that somebody puts out is good. Like right. that yeah. there it's an echo chamber. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of like probably what many of us found our Facebook feeds with family and friends to be like post election. Is oh, like, yeah. you know, you could really see magnified mm-hmm. the, di- the, dif- the, yeah. the difference in politics. And I think in Twitter what you run into is, you know, people who have um kind of deep networks this is probably also true in academics in uh, general in life, right, right? Yeah, like, i think you're right yeah that they are given the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that they're right mm-hmm. and everybody else is wrong mm-hmm. and i think that likes and retweets yeah. without reading and thinking about common, their message common. oh yeah because it's like you just want to support your friend or yeah. your coworker or whatever it's like it's your brand yeah and so i think there is a lot of that going on and i think um Everybody has to be a little cautious about, you know, recognizing that it's great to support your friend and colleague, um, but you probably also want to look the at the paper. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have this weird it. thing that I like. I don't like to retweet like links to papers until I read the paper. Sometimes people have asked me, like, can you tweet my paper? And I'm like, well, let me read it first. And it takes me a few days. But I mean, I do think that, yeah, you, you want to read it. Cause yeah. Sometimes even even those you, 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 you care deeply about yeah. can can make some some little mistakes and you don't right wanna... and you may not want to be like this is a great paper by yeah. this person it's like and we all have had that right where yeah, somebody that you're friends with is like this paper is awesome and it's like uh it just got published online five minutes ago so yeah. like have you opened it like did you click on it <laughs> right, right like were you the reviewer like how do you know this paper so right, well it's like right, i yeah. appreciate your enthusiasm for me as a scientist like feeling the confidence to say that yeah in absence of reading it but i i do think there's that downside risk yeah too. i'd much rather have your attention oh the other thing you said that really struck with me was um um like um uh, taking in corrections and feedback anytime we publish a paper we're going to get people who point out that anything from typos to like a mistake in the figure, you know, whatever. This is a human endeavor. We're all going to have these things. And what I tell everyone I work with is like, you make a word document. And as we get these emails or, you know, as we get these tweets or emails or whatever, wherever you see it, Mm -hmm. you, you put it in the word document and then just collect it. We've got to collect every bit of feedback. Anyone's giving us that like is specific, Uh, you know, they don't some broad feedback. I don't have time for, but if it's specific, we collect it all. And then we're going to go through and then we're going to see if they're right or wrong. And if they're right on any of these things from typo, it's, it tends to be typographic because I'm not good at that. But um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think, and it also, like, 20 people can look at a paper, there'll be some typo in yep, there still. Yeah, absolutely. And then I say, like, and then we got to just, you know, just one fell swoop, we fix them all. Uh, and that's the thing. That's the process. And if they did ever point to, like, I'm fortunate to be in the same situation as you. Nothing has ever kind of flipped the conclusion. Mm-hmm. But if they ever pointed to that, then yeah, we'll flip it. I mean, yeah. we're not trying to win. You know, we're not trying to like say that everything we do is somehow magical and we don't make errors. Yeah, I'm sure we make errors. Like everybody makes errors, but we're hoping that the process is self-correcting. And we're we we didn't do it hoping to make errors. We yeah. we did that because we're human. So do you have? I'm I'm now turning the tables oh, on boy. you and asking you a question. It's not, not permitted. <laughs> do you feel like that you have like? any like any key successes or failures on twitter and maybe you cover this in your other podcasts of that the one you didn't listen to yeah <laughs> um key success and failures oh yeah well there's too many hours i don't think anyone could listen to that at all um i guess i would say i mean what has really resonated with people um and I didn't come up with the phrase tweetorial but mm-hmm. i really do like it yeah it's great it's i think it's better than these other ones i see like 
quarrel or something. I no, that's know. terrible. It's terrible, right? It's simple branding. Come on, go. Come <laughs> on, work for industry or something. You people will figure this out. But tutorial, I think, is good. And I think like one of the things was I did some tutorial in like nutritional epidemiology, which I think is a a field with some structural problems in the way yeah in the way they <laughs> analyze their data, um, sort of deeper structural problems which is not unique to any one study or any one researcher right. and that, that are really need to be talked about in part because I think it hurts people like you or me because you know we're all part of this healthcare news ecosystem and the more we have nutritional epidemiology of unreliable causal claims being put there all the time we get a public that really becomes I think jaded towards science oh, and for sure I think it's problematic so anyway I had a tutorial where I kind of walked through some of the three pitfalls I see like you know measurement error multiplicity mm -hmm. residual confounding you know, things like that um, classic epidemiology principles and I tried my best which maybe I don't do a great job of to try to like tone it down but do my best to like make this educational yeah, and but that, you have to also make it kind of fun. Yeah, that's, that's how you I get think. people. Hooked. I think it has to be it a has little to be bit provocative, a little bit um, cheeky, a little mm -hmm. bit educational. I think that's the that's the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. um, it got a lot of interest, and there's like somebody did like a newspaper story on it, and then some of these tutorials have generated interest, um, which I think has been the 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 height of it. And I'm sh I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm sure that being on Twitter has led to, you know, real friendships with real people in the real world, real invitations to give a lecture at real places, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and maybe some visibility for some of this work. And um, so those have been the key successes. The, the failures have, of course, been um, somebody sent me this cartoon, and it was a cartoon of somebody, and, um, and this person was like, uh, there's like a, a voice bubble that says, hey, come to dinner. And then this person was like, oh, I'm coming, honey, uh, but I, I just have to finish arguing with somebody on the internet. <laughs> and, and sometimes it feels like that. You're like, uh -huh. oh, my God, I'm, I'm supposed to be working on some manuscript. I'm supposed to be doing something. But why am I arguing with all these random people on the internet? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, for what am I doing with my time? So I think the time sink part is the, has been the negative. Um, and I think, of course, like anything, um, you walk into exposing different feelings among people who may be annoyed if you know somebody who's doesn't deserve it has too many followers or that kind of feeling that might be elicited in some senior faculty and so there's been some pushback there but I think overall like you I think it's a positive experience and you have to I don't even know if it's like gonna be it's almost becoming like part of the job like you were saying yeah yeah, yeah I mean I think for me, it's been very positive. I think the connection to journalists has been by far the most productive part because, yeah. you know, I think that those end up being conversations and connections that you can kind of sustain over time, whether or not you stay active on Twitter. Um, so that, that to me has been the biggest upside. And I think for downsides, I think you're, you're right too. The distraction... Um, and just kind of like whether or not you're ready to take in so much news. I think especially right. um, when, depending on what you're following, you could be taking in more than just health-related news or things related to your area of science, which can be kind of hard to take on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that figuring out the right balance so that you don't feel bad about how the world is working <laughs> it's like it's also a helpful filter that's very important well thanks for taking time to talk about this yeah absolutely you've been listening to plenary session 
Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.